Hey there, it's Kim Kelly here. I'm a writer of Australian historical fiction, mostly. I'll be talking to Veronica in episode 20 about my genre-bending latest, Her Last Words. It's a crime story, it's a multi-layered love story, and at its heart is a missing manuscript. And I had some wicked fun spilling my beans on the Australian publishing industry in its pages. And such great fun chatting with Veronica about it all too. See you on the podcast soon. Once upon a time, welcome to Australian Book Lovers, your destination for imagination. Hello and welcome to everyone and thank you for joining us for the Australian Book Lovers podcast, episode 19. Our mission is to bring fabulous Australian and Indigenous literature that spans a whole range of genres to book lovers around the globe, as well as fantastic resources and information for passionate authors looking to write their next bestseller. I'm Veronica Strachan, fantasy, memoir and picture book writer, reader, one of your co-founders and hosts for today. And I'm coming to you from Woiwurrung Country during this Reconciliation Week. And I am Darren Kazanko, science fiction and horror author, reader, and one of your other co-hosts and co-founder of Australian Book Lovers. And I am coming to you today from Corner Country. Beautiful. And oh. here we are. <laughs> episode number 19. Yay. Hooray, episode 19. And it it's interesting because the theme for Reconciliation Week is more than a word reconciliation takes action so some little small actions uh, on our part is to acknowledge the custodians traditional owners of the lands that we work uh, and absolutely I'm also uh, my daughter attended her company organized it for um, this week uh, organized her to have a workshop by acknowledge this so this is um, a couple of people who got together uh, recent Emma, and they teach how to do a meaningful acknowledgement of country without fear because uh, many uh, non-Aboriginal people worry that they would be disrespectful and even though we do the acknowledgement, sometimes it becomes a bit rote so that you don't understand what's behind it. So I've actually booked myself to go in and do this little session, this two-hour session, and it, it talks to you about the understanding of what the acknowledgement is, the purpose of each part, and you can personalise your acknowledgement of country to adapt it to, you know, any gathering. And what I love about it is that they talk about a shared history. So this is uh, a, an Aboriginal uh, gentleman and the woman is from, oh, I think she's got a, a mixed European heritage. I haven't heard the whole thing. So I'll have lots more information uh, after I've had the little session. But there you go. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. And is that yeah. is that is those sorts of workshops? Is that something that's available to people all across the country? Or is yeah, it absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you can go to acknowledgethis.com.au, and you can just it's only thirty dollars. Uh, individuals paying for themselves, they can do organisational ones, of course. But yeah, a lot of the profits go to a better start for disadvantaged Indigenous students. So you couldn't get, you know a better opportunity to take some action in this reconciliation week. So it's actually 20 years since the first, you know, uh, reconciliation movement kind of took off in Australia. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, something along the lines of these sorts of workshops, I think the, the whole idea sounds fantastic because ultimately it's, you know, acknowledging the past absolutely is necessary, but the number one thing that is going to lead to any sort of achievements in when it comes to reconciliation is having a roadmap moving forward. Yes. And in, in time. And something like th this bring is a little bit of a bridge, I think. Yeah. Uh, it allow and, and hopefully, you know, when if this becomes a little bit more commonplace and a little bit more of a, you know, standard feature in our everyday vernacular and general levels of respect when introducing anything or events or yes. what it might be. It yes. also hopefully opens up conversations a little bit better and breaks down those little boundaries that uh, I think sometimes they're imaginary boundaries, but uh, everybody yeah. has the same yeah. imagination that they yeah. exist uh, yes. when maybe they don't really. You know, we're yeah. all human. And uh, look, we're the, most of us li listening to this podcast now uh, were not born, you know, but, uh, in the 1800s. No, so we all, uh, <laughs> not we even all, me. No, so we all have a shared history that's a lot different to you know that those histories, and uh, so we are moving forward, I think, in time, and yeah. so too is the reconciliation process. So, yeah, fantastic mm. opportunity. I'm, I'm yeah. going to so look into it. Absolutely. History. Yeah. So, unfortunately, reconciliation uh, week finishes, you know, um, today virtually, and the podcast will come out in a little while. So encourage everybody to continue to educate themselves and explore how you can contribute to achieving reconciliation uh, you know, definitely in Australia um, and have a bit of a look and see. Part of what we are doing is of course encouraging Australian and Indigenous authors to uh, you know list their works with us um, and yeah really really happy to see any author who wants to jump on and share their books with us yes agree 100 percent. and you're right by the there is a difference between the, the date today and the date the podcast will come out yeah. it'll only be a couple of days difference but yeah. technically the reconciliation week may have come to an end yes. however that is just um doesn't mean don't a, think an imagination it. thing as well exactly reconciliation right. doesn't end yes so i'm going to keep going with my news so i've got the inaugural Karaka Prize long list has been announced. So that's created in honour of the late Wiradjuri elder, poet, writer, activist and artist, Kerry Reed Gilbert. Oh, so you can... Hang on, before we talk about Gilbert, yep. um, we need to put the uh, officially announced the news segment. Oh, sorry. Go Here ahead. we go, the news. Yay. News. <laughs> All right, so some news. We have the Keeping in Mind Reconciliation uh, Week. The inaugural Karaka Prize long list was announced. So that was in honour of Wiradjuri elder, poet, writer, activist and artist Kerry Reed Gilbert. Uh, and so you can read uh, about that if you chase that up and type in Karaka, which is K-U-R-A-C-C-A. Um, and that's for fiction, poetry, essay, memoir, creative nonfiction, cartoon or graphic stories and digital or audio storytelling. So they had about 500 submissions across all categories. Um, and the winner, uh, when they finally announced, will get $5,000 and two runners-up will get $1,000. And the three winners will get published in Overland. So that's a, another website for readers and writers to have a bit of a look at. That sounds great. And when it comes to the prizes, is there individual prizes for individual um, mediums? Like, or is uh, no, it overall? No, just, just... just three overall. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. But in line with that being um, 
for the uh, late Wiradjuri elder, poet, writer, activist and artist Kerry Reid Gilbert. I have a book review that you'll be able to uh, listen to at the end of this podcast by Professor Anita Heiss. Now, I'm going to, I think I've tried to say this word before, but I'm going to, you know, give it uh, another shot. Um, Billa Yaradungalangdure, uh, which is Wiradjuri for River of Dreams, and that is uh, a book which has traditional language on the cover, the first time in a commercial fiction. Uh, as I said, I think I've mentioned this before, but now I've finished reading it and I've left a book review. So we'll uh, we'll put that on the end of this episode awesome. and you'll be able to hear what I, uh, what I think about it. It's fantastic. I'm just going to give you the heads up there. <laughs> and here's some news about secondhand books. So uh, one of our listeners sent this in, thought it might be good to share with everybody. Uh, the world of books, you can actually get secondhand books from the world of books and it's a it's a a reuse site which is fantastic to um, buy something that is already there so we're reducing carbon footprints etc so authorshare is introducing the world's first reuse royalty initiative for writers so authors will now be able to receive royalties on sales of used books Thanks to AuthorShare. So this is this, you know, new scheme and you can look it up uh, blog.worldofbooks.com uh, and have a bit of a look at that. So currently it's only from uh, their site, uh, but they really hope it's a World of Books and Book Barn, international websites. But what they do is that hope that other secondhand uh, book sites will also start to have a think about that as well. So that's a really good thing because I'm going to say I own up to buying a lot of secondhand books. I can't help myself. Uh, when I see them, I just have to get them, you know, and I even, you know, buy books before barcodes and those kind of things. So there you go. Uh, blog.worldofbooks. Have a look, everybody. And if you're a reader, you might want to purchase some secondhand books from there. And if you're an author, you might want to have a look and register and see um, what happens there. Yeah, what a cool idea. And yeah. I, was, I was just thinking, obviously, my tinfoil hat comes on again on a <laughs> for a bit of fun. Uh, but with... Uh, you know, with textbooks and how, like, I know, well, it wasn't kind of that way when I was at uni, but I, I read it's pretty similar still today, where a lot of the times they they really, not push you, but suggest you buy the latest version of a particular textbook because it's been updated and has much more relevant information. And it's usually, of course, to help the authors who usually, well, not all usually, but sometimes running the classes. Yes. And this may prevent that because now if they get royalties from the sale of the a secondhand textbook, then it eliminates the need to always bring up updated ones to try and maintain that uh, that, that cash flow. Yeah. So just, yeah. It, it, it could really work. But otherwise, yeah. what a cool idea. It is a cool idea. Yeah. And I do have just one more thing, some news about one of our own Indigenous authors, and I call him our own because he was our very first podcast, delightful uh, young man by the name of Gary Lonsborough, and congratulations to him because he has made the shortlist for the Readings YA Book Prize 2021. So that's fantastic. So, that's awesome. Yeah, there are half a dozen uh, on that short list. So he's in really good company. So we've got our fingers crossed uh, that Gary, uh, well, really it doesn't matter. He's there. He's Lots of people are reading his stories and there's lots of great, I guess, momentum around his story and lots of own voices. And that kind of fits in with um, the interview that we've got later. But also with the news but it's website news so i'm going to pass over the exciting website news do you want to tell us 
the new books that we're going to have and we'll be able to see some additional Indigenous authors. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, a huge thank you to Wild Dingo Press, who have so graciously and kindly um, allowed us to start to bring across a lot of their awesome titles and to be listed on the Australian Book Lovers website, which means, you know, a great opportunity for all of our book lovers out there when they visit the website. It's the our Indigenous collection is going to grow very quickly. So it's going to be a really good opportunity to have a look at some great Indigenous authors. Now, of course, Indigenous author does not necessarily pigeonhole anything that they're writing. No. Uh, for, for, and that, all that, genres, all sorts absolutely, of books. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, uh, but but yes, absolutely. So we'll slowly be bringing across a lot of those titles, which is fantastic. And yeah. uh, again, huge shout out and thanks to Wild Dingo Press. And their tagline, sorry, I just wanted to mention their tagline, is books that stand their ground. And that's fantastic. So I first had a bit of a look at them. So I thought, oh, we really need some more non-fiction books because, you know, we um, want to encourage people like yourself who read a lot of non-fiction. Yes, I'm a, and I'm a bit just of an was, addict on them at the moment. Yeah, following the trail. And they've got some fantastic books there. Uh, not all of them are non-fiction, of course. And also a really uh, the reason I got into it is that there was a really brilliant series that they've got uh, for younger readers, which is um, uh, around the STEM stars, Aussie STEM stars. Ah, yes, And, yes. Uh, yeah, which is fantastic. And so one of their STEM stars is, of course, the uh, lovely Professor Fiona Wood, who I did some work with in WA when we we're doing wound management and, and burns and all those kind of things. So that's the long story of how <laughs> we got to Wild Dingo Press. And when we approached them, they said, yep. Sounds good. So we're, we're working with them. Yeah, and it, it's just such a great relationship to be able to build because obviously Walt Dingo Press are, are, are a fantastic company and they're doing, you know, gangbuster stuff for their authors. But but allowing us to list their titles on the Australian Book Lovers also helps us to make a greater experience for book lovers out there because it's yeah. a, a kind of a one-stop yeah. shop, which is obviously our goal. It's become the yes. Australia's premier one-stop shop where you can find, you know, explore a huge library, of course, all by great Australian and Indigenous authors. Uh, so, Excellent. yes, definitely yep. a little bit of a, a, a like, yeah, relationship, I guess. Is a, yes. Yeah, so it's a beautiful yeah. thing. Uh, yeah, because we're, uh, we're uh, happy to work with small press or large press or self-publishers. So uh, I should actually mention that STEM is the, you know, of course, the curriculum-based uh, idea of educating students about science, technology, engineering and maths. So just in case anybody didn't know what STEM was, you haven't had um, children at school for a while or you've missed those bits and pieces. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. and I think uh, half of our yeah. audience just went, oh, God. And they <laughs> went, yeah. Yeah, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> you either love math or you don't. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So that's and, fantastic. Well, love or hate it. I don't think anyone truly understands it, but nonetheless. No, that's uh, it. Yeah, um, yeah so that, that's lovely that um, we've got, because we've got Dead Set Press, uh, we've had some good relationships with them. We've got lots of their books uh, on the side. Indeed. And now Wild Dingo. So we'll, we'll gradually, you know, approach and, and work through um the other people yep yes good. yes the library will continue to grow absolutely <laughs> it will and speaking of the library i once again would like to take the opportunity in this new segment to spotlight a few of the fantastic reads we've got on the website so yes. for all of our book lovers out there if uh, something pricks your ears up and sounds like uh, your jam then definitely head on and have a look so i thought i would start with something from our fantasy selection and this is a book titled the age of heroes And that's by author Scott J. Robinson. Now, the Age of Heroes description reads as the following. Rourke is one of the great heroes. He has travelled the world for 40 years, hunting exotic creatures, 
battling magic and fighting evil wherever he found it. But he has been fighting mostly mundane battles since Prince Weaver outlawed magic. And with no great deeds left to be done, Rourke is afraid he'll soon be the old man in the corner of the tavern, dreaming of the good old days and telling tales for anyone who will buy him a drink. But when a huge Walden wolf is spied from the walls of Catamood for the first time in a decade, Rourke is the man the city looks to once more. He'll save them. He always has. Rourke will fight to ensure the age of heroes doesn't slip away into history. But what if the good old days aren't quite as good as he remembers? Now, that was The Age of Heroes by fantasy author Scott J. Robinson. And, of course, no prizes for guessing where you find it <laughs> under our wonderful fantasy genre uh, with our groovy, groovy kookaburra. Yes, who's soon to be named. Yes, absolutely. Something that uh, possibly the next podcast will be announcing that. Yes. Yes. Now, for you mentioned nonfiction earlier, Veronica, mm-hmm. and I thought this is a very timely title. It's one of our brand new listings on the website, but it's also, I think, you know, for reasons good or bad, is, is a quite timely title and, and uh, subject matter for probably, you know, more for Victorian than anything, but in general. So it is titled Simple Activities for Toddlers. Uh, and that's by author Lisa Forsyth. And again, that's found under our non-fiction genre. So the description is, do you find yourself repeating the same activities with your toddler? And are you looking for new innovative ideas on how to keep them amused whilst making learning fun? If so, Lisa and Thomas have lots of great ideas to help you. The activities in this book are of high educational quality that maximizes the best use of your time, resources, and space. These play-based activities help your child thrive and ensures that they get a head start in life. All the activities have been toddler approved or field tested by none other than Thomas. Now, Lisa Forsyth has over 15 years of experience as a teacher across Australia, New Zealand, and the UK. Since becoming a mother to Thomas, she has focused her time on developing simple activities that develop foundational skills toddlers need to learn before engaging with more complex concepts and understandings. So this is a practical guide for parents that creates opportunities to bond with your child and make beautiful lifelong memories. So that's Simple Activities for Toddlers by Lisa Forsyth, which you'll find in our non-fiction genre. And uh, yeah, so if you are, you know, find yourself in lockdown at any point and with a toddler, Maybe it's a great opportunity to try something different, see if there's some really cool activities in there that maybe you didn't think of or, or that can yeah. utilise the, the space and, and the, you know, the odds and ends that you've got floating around. Mm, very timely for Victoria. Yes. But now I would like to spotlight a title from our Aussie Tales selection, uh, which, of course, is our wonderful Echidna in Thongs. And mm-hmm. this title is called May Day Mine, and it's by author Verity Croker. Now, May Day Mine reads as follows. Life in a small mining town can be like living in a fishbowl where everyone knows everyone else's business. 15-year-old Jody's mother wants her father to quit his binge drinking and his dangerous job at the mine, even more so after a collapse leaves two miners dead and three trapped deep underground. As tensions escalate both at home and around the town, Jody seeks comfort with her friends but soon faces a double betrayal. As Jody struggles to gain autonomy over her life, she begins to discover the person she really is. But with everything around her spiralling out of control, it may not be the right time to let her family, friends, and ultimately the whole town know, no matter how much she wants to. So, yes, yeah, a bit of an intriguing story there mm. to unravel. May Day Mine by Verity Croker, again, mm-hmm. can be found under our Aussie Tales. Very good. I like now, the spotlights. Yeah. Enjoying those. Yeah. So yeah. some cool tales out there, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So, 
Now, this one sounds very intriguing, and this one is actually covers, well, two genres. It's a title called Black Diamonds by author Kim Kelly, who's a very prolific writer and has quite a mm. few uh, titles listed on the Australian Book Lovers website. This can be found under both our historical fiction genre as well as our Aussie tales. And Black Diamonds reads as follows. It's 1914, and the coal town of Lithgow is booming. Daniel Ackerman is a serious young man, a miner, a socialist, and a German. Francine Colony is the bourgeois, Irish Catholic, too good for this place daughter of one of the mine owners. When a tragic accident forces them together, this class-crossed pair fall in love despite themselves. Before the signatures on their marriage certificate are dry, though, war erupts, and a much more terrifying obstacle confronts them. Against his principles, but driven by a sense of solidarity, Daniel enlists. Francine, horrified, has no choice but to watch him go. Thrown into a daunting new world of separation and grief, they learn things about each other that they may never have known in more certain times. Hard lessons about heroism, sacrifice, and the thin line between bravery and stupidity. Told with freshness, verve, and wit, Black Diamonds is the tale of a fierce young nation, Australia, and two fierce hearts who dare to discover what courage really means. Mm. And a quote from Australian Women's Weekly for Black Diamonds reads, this is the story of a love greatly tested and of the resilience of ordinary Australians sucked into a pointless war by propaganda. It's mm. enough to turn you into a war protester. So I say run out and grab it now then. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so once again, that's Black Diamonds by Kim Kelly uh, under our, both our historical fiction and Aussie tales. And once you do scroll through there, you'll see a bunch of fantastic titles from Kim. Fantastic. And, oh, one more, Veronica, and I think okay. uh, this is one that's right up your alley because I think we've right. even, uh, you've done a review of this one, but I thought we'd do a bit of a spotlight, and that is yep. City of Whispers, an oh, Imperial oh, Assassin book one that. by yes. Indigenous author Cat Powers. Yes. And obviously this can be found, well, obviously, but uh, this City of Whispers can be found under our Indigenous um, listing a genre. And, again, this is book one of the Imperial Assassin series. So City of Whispers. I can't wait Whispers. for book two. <laughs> Did, uh, is it out yet? No, it's not yet out. Not no, yet. No, not I yet. know she's working on it because I've, oh, <laughs> you know, there's a little back and forth on on Twitter and Instagram, and I know she's working on. It. But she's got a fascinating background. She's an archaeologist as well, so she's uh, often out and about, you know, through the back of South Australia and Central Australia, looking at archaeological digs and, particularly also, uh, you know, Aboriginal cultural. Uh, mm. items as well so she's got her hands full doing lots of things but i'd like to just to stay home and finish writing book two for me. <laughs> well there you go cat if you are listening <laughs> you've got definite sales waiting yeah. so now city of whispers reads as a disgraced assassin a sinister plot will her one shot at redemption send her to the grave dani karam is furious wrongly expelled from the imperial assassins the snarky killer is forced into a lowly, unranked position in a remote desert colony, working with a guy who's clearly damaged goods. And when they barely survive an attack on what should have been a routine assignment, she fears clearing her name could cost her life. Struggling to navigate a land where she's the only person who can't wield magic, things get worse when she receives a death threat and her unwanted partner vanishes. But when the clues lead to a violent cult, Dani finds herself in a race against time to stop a bloodbath that will consume thousands of innocent lives. Can she expose a deadly conspiracy before it causes a massacre? City of Whispers is the thrilling first book in the Imperial Assassin fantasy adventure series. If you like kick-ass heroines, high-octane action and off-the-chart snark, then you'll love Cat Power's gritty tale. And that is City of Whispers. 
book one, sorry, Imperial Assassin, book one by Cat Powers. And that can be found under our fantasy sorry, genre as well as our indigenous genres. And, oh, that sounds so good. I do love me a mysterious cult with uh, dangerous simmerings in in, uh, remote locations. Yeah, and lots of action, lots of plots within plots. And, yeah, Danny Karim, the the protagonist, you know, the the main character is fantastic. I just loved her. Really good. Yeah. (laughs) So there you go, uh, dear listeners. If you are looking for a new book and one of those stories has perked your interest, Please do jump on to the Australian Book Lovers website and flick through our genres, locate some of these amazing books where you can click on learn more and, and get a little bit more of an in-depth description as mm-hmm. well as learn a little bit about the author. And, of course, yep. if it is going to be your jam, there's a button there. You can grab a copy straight away from wherever the, uh, the author has nominated. And not only are you going to get a huge spark to your imagination, but you'll also be supporting some fantastic Australian authors. Yeah, and that is my news. But I understand that our new segment today is going to, we're about to move to a very special little addition today. Is that right, We Monica? are. We are. But there's one little thing that I do want to say. Do you remember the last episode we were talking about Gothic literature oh, and cool. about Australian Gothic and then particularly about Tasmanian Gothic? Well, Zane Pinner, who is on uh, Twitter, who popped up in my feed, with hashtags Tasmanian Gothic, Fiction Tasmania. Um, he is at the Twilight Zane, Z-A-N-E. Oh, nice. um, I thought, how good is that? So I said, hey, you need to listen to our last podcast. And so ever so kindly, um, he has said uh, it looks fantastic. He's definitely going to have a little bit of a listen. So there you go, the amazing connections that come up. Lots of people are on Twitter at the moment about Pitmad, which will be over by the time the episode comes but it's the opportunity to uh, pitch a tweet-length storybook work to agents. So the agents will get on and they'll have a look at, they'll, you know, hashtag PicMad, and if they're looking for gothic fiction, they'll go hashtag gothic. If they're looking for YA, hashtag YA, and they can, then it will show them all of the uh, pictures that come up. So I think you're allowed to pitch once an hour or three times over the eight hours or something. Anyway, there are rules. Um, Authors can have a look. But if you're a reader and you want to have a look and see what some potential upcoming books are, jump onto Twitter and have a look at PitchMad. Now, please, if you do know, don't, like it unless you are an author uh, sorry an agent just retweet or comment and that helps the algorithm to recognize and push Uh, it to the top but there you go i just thought a great great little pitch um politician tells truth goes swimming (laughs) doesn't make it to dinner you know you want people will say no that'll never sell (laughs) (laughs) but no all right so there you go so that was a a nice connection with zane Zane absolutely the old synchronicity at work thank you universe there is some there is a little bit of magic hidden in there Indeed. But as you say, we do have, uh, and we've been saying to people, please let us know what you thought of the writing festivals. So I am really thrilled to be able to say that we have one of our authors again, uh, Kevin uh, Clare. Legendary author. A legendary author, indeed. Uh, Kevin was one of the organisers for the Icarus conference. uh, And uh, we did some help with some advertising and those kind of things uh, a little while back so we caught up with kevin for a quick chat about what he thought so here you go and i'd like to welcome to the podcast kevin claire so kevin as you will know is one of our uh, authors who was on an earlier podcast all about his own books but kevin is also uh 
a big contributor to the LGBTQI plus community. And he has been uh, an organiser, I say that, you know, in inverted commas, for the Icarus <laughs> Conference. So, Kevin, tell us all about the Icarus Conference. Tell us about the organising. What were the best Sure, things? sure. Where you go. Look, look, it was interesting because um, the, in the end, uh, there was six of us organising. There was uh, Gillian in New Zealand. There was me. There was Ava in Romania. There was Marvin in the US. And mm-hmm. there was Jeff in the UK. And there was also Glenn in Northern Ireland who was responsible for all the little pictures of our mascot, Alex Q-Star, the, yes. the cat that you see all over the place. <laughs> yep. um, and, and, and basically when... The others started this and they were having um, meetings in the, well, in the morning when it would have been the middle of the night for me on Monday morning. Yep. So I couldn't join, but I'd read the minutes of the meeting and see if there was anything left for me to do, et cetera. Um, And then they kept making the meeting later and later to the point where it was 6 a.m., Monday morning Sydney time. So I thought they've gone through all this trouble. Poor Ava's staying awake till close to midnight in Romania (laughs) because they keep moving this to try to get everyone involved. Yeah. Um, So I thought, well, I'd better better set the alarm and join the meetings. So I eventually did. And then when daylight saving finished in the Southern Hemisphere, but started in the Northern Hemisphere, and we were down to the last couple of months of this of, of organizing this event mm-hmm. the meetings would start sydney time 5 a.m monday morning ah. so so i i'd have i'd have broken sleep that night the <laughs> alarm was set for you know 10 to or well, I'd, I'd be out on the uh, 10 to 5 i should say i'd be out on the balcony so i wouldn't disturb anyone in the apartment or my husband in the apartment um you know rugged up with headphones, with my Madonna mic and, yeah. you know, and helping organise. I, I ended up doing a lot of the social media stuff. But basically what Icarus was, we did a, an online book conference which mm-hmm. which streamed live. Um, it started Sydney time, 2am um, on Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. And even though I took sleeping tablets that night because my first appearance wasn't until 7am, yep. I still woke up close uh, I think at what 20 past one and then you know got up to see if this thing actually worked if it was streaming <laughs> live on YouTube there was two uh, sessions at any one time I just wanted to make sure it all worked and yep. it all worked beautifully and I think I finally got to sleep probably close to five and then oh. was you know deep deep dream sleep when the alarm went off it's like oh, oh. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be up to, I'm gonna, my first appearance is at seven I've got to be there oh, so a truly to... international event then but sounds like yes. it, it got off to a good start yeah yeah we had we had um um indie authors and, and a couple of um with major publishers mm-hmm. from um all over the world from you know, from from the UK, from from Europe, um, um, yeah, it, it, it did go off well. And we had some really interesting um, um, sessions. Like, mm-hmm. if, if anyone wants to watch any of the sessions, um, it, it, the best way to do it is to go to IcarusBookCon.com, which is spelled I Q A R U S bookcon.com and you just hit the little youtube link 
Yep. And you'll see all the sessions we had. And one of the best sessions, actually, which I I watched back later, mm-hmm. was social media marketing. It's mm-hmm. um, uh, outside the box. It has uh, several people who, you know, market for other people on social media or have their own um, specialist social media that they you know, have an audience for. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the hardest things that they found, like when you watch it back, is is trying to outguess the algorithms every time they change. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. As if it isn't hard one. enough, they will, yes, change them on all the different platforms at all different times. And it's like just when you thought you had it, no. Exactly. And suddenly you go back out to the same 20 people when you really want to reach hundreds and thousands of people who, who because I sometimes teach media, I tell students, sometimes you have to treat Facebook and especially Facebook like it's MySpace. Go and find (laughs) the pages of the people you want to start, that you want to be seen in their feeds and start communicating with them. Start, but don't say, please come and look at me, but start liking, start commenting. Yeah, and eventually be a part then, of the community. Yeah, yeah, and then you will you will go back into their, into their feed, yes. you know, but it's a, <laughs> it's a frustrating way to do it. Oh, yeah. Another highlight of this event, um, uh, uh, I hosted the Romance Readings Part 1. Right. And that features um, one New Zealander and some other Australians, including... Um, Rebecca Langham, whose romance, yes, yes, you know Rebecca well. Um, her romance uh, author pen name is Cara Ripley. So if you if you're looking for that session, on the thumbnail it says Cara Ripley. She she yes. writes her dystopian stuff as Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Her her romance stuff as Cara, and her kids were with her the whole time. They were hugging her while she was talking to the laptop, etc. And in the reading she did, she had to drop the f bomb. Oh. And as soon as soon as she drops it, she turns around <laughs> to her daughter and says, "Don't you ever use that word? Don't you ever <laughs> use that word?" And then comes back and continues and continues reading. It's it's fabulous. It's oh. fabulous. Oh, that's a classic. That's very good. Yeah. So how many people did you have, yeah, I guess, online at any one time? I, I'm sure it varied over the sessions, but what was your, your average attendance? Um, watching or as part of the panels? Either or. Um, you know, I don't know how many were watching at any one time. I've been mm-hmm. looking at the views since. Um, you know which 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 sessions have been most popular, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, one good thing with the um, platform we used, it also gave us the comments back from YouTube. We didn't have to keep an nice. eye on YouTube. Nice. Um, we used Melon, right. um, which which sets itself up as a little TV studio, as you'll mm-hmm. guess, come in and you set them up and pick a background and yeah. and. And you have your own like personal feed, so you can all talk to each other if you need to. Mm-hmm. But it also brings you the comments from YouTube, and you can use Melon to comment back, mm-hmm. and then the audience sees it on their YouTube. Right. So there's it, live streaming on YouTube. Live stream, via live stream Melon. via okay. Melon. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it also it also live streams to Facebook, but I didn't want to try to set that up as well. So <laughs> like like one one place is enough. Is they can enough, watch it, yeah. They can watch it there. Yeah. Um so so I don't know how many people watched while the sessions were going on, but I've noticed the numbers going up um 
um, for the past live streams at the Icarus YouTube channel yeah. for certain sessions, like like um, not your typical fantasy readings and looking today the you know when we're recording this the 2nd of june yep and 71 views which is not bad mm, um yeah. romance readings part one 90 views so mm -hmm. they're all there they're interesting yeah. still getting people to, to check it out yeah exactly exactly yeah. exactly and that's yeah. what you want so will the conference meet again um we're talking about it there's a few other people who want to be involved this time and help right. us um one of them is an author who joined us for um the session about research because he does he also does a lot of research in his job mm -hmm. and he really wants to be part of this um next year mm -hmm. um whether it happens or not who knows yeah It'd be, it'd be good to, to know it would be, would become a, and seeing that we've done the first one, we've ironed out all the bugs and all yes, the stress. Oh, yeah, God, the stress <laughs> leading up to it was because part of my stress for waking up at, you know, two o'clock to see if this thing went live is. I'm the one that suggested melon using oh, melons. Okay. So, so I had all these feeling a little of, accountability okay. there. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and when I got up and saw, oh, it's all working. The stream, two streams are happening live at any one yeah. time. It's it's all working. But 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 even um, leading up to it, like suddenly all our reputations are at stake. Mm. We've got people involved who are going to be featured. We're promoting this. There were. Um, we got people to register so that they could win prizes by yep, being part of the scavenger hunt. Yes. You know, we had all our guests writing guest blogs to help us with social media leading up to the event. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff happened. So if it didn't go right on the day, you know, all our yes. faces were all over different social media <laughs> platforms saying, hey, yeah put your eyes here yes. on the day you know yeah no that's yeah. good and as you say now that most of the bugs are out second time around is so much easier yeah yeah we know what to do next time we know where we fell short yeah. the first time around we know what worked we know we we know how to shortcut it next time yeah and certainly uh i recently attended the online conference flights of Foundry, which was um, the oh, Dream yeah. Foundry, which was fantastic. Um, you know, all speculative fiction, of course, my fave. Yep. It was 24 hours, which was brilliant because then they put on panels that had Aussies and Kiwis in it um, and also some uh, South American uh, authors, etc., in our time zone. So at any time of the day, you could go on and there would be something happening, uh, which is, you know, look, silver linings for COVID. Not a lot of conferences would necessarily have thought about doing their conferences yeah. either for 24 hours or online so yeah i'm going yay let's yeah. let's call that yeah. a winner I, th I, think, I think that's a winner because because uh, even in the um you know the later part of the the latter part of this mm -hmm. you know it was pretty much um jillian and my jillian in new zealand and mm -hmm. my, myself hosting with mm -hmm. our american and our canadians still online mm -hmm. but for but but Ava stayed up till 5 a.m. Romanian time oh. <laughs> just to still be part of this. Oh, and, yeah. and, you know, we, we were saying, you know, go to bed, you know, don't be, <laughs> don't be part of the latest sessions, but Ava wanted to be part of the whole thing. What was happening? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. All right, well, we will keep an eye out and uh, let us know when and if the next one's going on. 
But definitely. as a sucker for punishment, you've got another conference that you're involved in. Not quite a conference, no. and, I, and I'm not the organiser, thankfully. There's, oh. there's this great new little group called the Rainbow Literary Society Australia. Right. They've, they've done two... What they're trying to do is do um, author reading nights, mm-hmm. and they've successfully done two already. The last one was just featured uh, me and Rebecca. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but but this time around on June the 19th um, at three o'clock at the Stonewall Hotel in Sydney, mm-hmm. um, uh, they're featuring, um, oh, hold on, I don't have the poster in front of me. They're, fe- they're featuring, oh, obviously me, Rebecca Langham, yep. a, a, a wonderful author named Nigel Bartlett, who has uh, a really good a wonderful book he released a couple of years ago through Random House mm-hmm. called King of the Road, which is a thriller mm-hmm. about about a, a young gay man who, while he's looking after his nephew, his nephew goes missing mm-hmm. and he goes on the road to find him. There's also a wonderful author named KJ who I've just discovered because I um, asked her to be part of the romance reading group. Her stuff is lovely. If you mm-hmm. get a chance even to look at the Icarus Romance Part 1 session and listen to KJ's readings, mm-hmm. it, is, it, is, it is lovely. And I've, silly me, I've forgotten the name of the other, other um, person who's on our, on our session that day. Aren't I awful? <laughs> Aren't <laughs> I awful? I'm going to quickly find it because quickly just, find be, it. just before our meeting, I had two unplanned guests show up at my place. Of course. <laughs> and, and I was going to have this all, all set up. Actually, it's, it's, it's on the front page of my website. Uh, the other one is S.R. Silcox, who I know nothing about. Yep. Um, she's also from Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, uh, S.R. and KJ will be here from Melbourne for the event. But the thing is, they're trying to do more events. There's Will they be here? Month. We've just gone into another week of lockdown. So I know, I know. Yeah. Say the 19th of June? 19th of June in Sydney. Yeah. Oh, it could um, be okay. Um, October, in October, they're planning one in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, the date is not confirmed yet. It's. I do know it's not the first weekend of October because I had to check because Warren and I have to be at a wedding in Brisbane that weekend. Right. Um, but they are confirming one. They're hoping to do one in Perth. Right. And they're hoping to grow this event. Mm. Um, so, um, tell us a little bit about how the event works, if you would. Oh, look, basically it's free, um, but they do put um, an Eventbrite um, link for people to um, to be part of it. It's mm-hmm. run by uh, Rachel Byrne, who who is in Melbourne, uh, and uh, Sarah and. I think Victoria's in, in Sydney as well. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and there's also director Shane, who I think is also based in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're keen. They're, they're keen to start promoting queer writing um, in Australia to have these events because, you know, in the US there are heaps of these events right. in um um, places with more population, there are heaps of these events. Yes. But, but but they've got a passion for this writing, so they're putting on these events. You know, they're they're selling our books on our behalf at these events. Right. Yeah. Um, um, and like I said, yep. So, 
if you want to be if you if you if you want to um uh, come to the one in Sydney on the 19th of June. Mm-hmm. Uh, type in the Rainbow Literary Society.com mm-hmm. and there should there is a link, if I'm right. I don't want it strewed. People are strewing. <laughs> oh, read the team about home. Is it on the homepage? It's on the homepage and um, the Sydney event doesn't link, but, ah, but, but, Oh, look, just go to my website. <laughs> it's on the front page. The links are there. Kevin, okay. Kevin, K-L-E-H-R dot com. And no doubt, you know, I'm, I'm definitely going to be part of the Melbourne event and I'll update Beautiful. the front page of my web page with all the links for the Melbourne event as well. Excellent. Will you be reading from one of your published books or have you got um, something unpublished that you're going to share? Um, I'm By October, um, my newest book, um, the Midnight Man will be released. That gets released um, on August 17. Fantastic. And and it's a wonderful, you know, urban fantasy, fan, you know, magic realism, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. about a, an un- unhappy uh, 49-year-old man named Stan who is in a failed relationship, has an overbearing mother, hates his job, and... In his dreams, he meets a 21-year-old named Asher who takes him on dreamtime adventures but also gives him the gift of being an extra five years younger every time they meet. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, so so by the time he gets Stan in his dreams is in his 20s, a relationship develops between Asher and him. But the... that's not the main focus. It's not a romance. It's it's about Stan being challenged in his Dreamtime adventures with Asher to strengthen his own character, mm-hmm. so that so that he can start reevaluating his life and making changes in his life to be happier. Fantastic. Um, or as my um, editor, when when she gave me the yes, we we do want to publish this. Yep. Um, I'll send you the contract. Um, she she actually um, encapsulated and said, "This is actually a book about growing older." And I thought, I never uh, thought about it like that, but it is. It's a yeah. book about growing older. And if you're not happy with where you are, how do you change? Mm. What do you have to change within yourself to move forward? Very good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But at the Sydney event, I'll be reading from my first novel, um, Drama Queens with Love Scenes. Okay. Yeah. Very good. All right. Kevin Clare, thank you so much for checking in. Author, conference organiser, <laughs> event reader, you know, fantastic contributor to the writing community. Thank you so much. Thanks, Veronica. Thank you so much. All right. Cheers then. Bye. So, Kevin, Claire, thank you so much for that fabulous update on the Icarus Conference. And how about that, the Rainbow Literary Society of Australia? I love it. And they'll be bringing a reading to a capital city near you ever so soon. Probably not Melbourne. Oh, Melbourne's in October, I think. So that that works well. So, yeah, keep your eye out for that. Um, All those readers who like audiobooks, this could also be an in-real-life audiobook.
Yes, there you go. A three D audio book, no four D. Yeah, four D. But no, thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that. That is awesome, and uh, definitely maintains your legendary status. Yes, <laughs> so, it is. And uh, I think we. Well, I'm hoping that uh, we'll we'll be hearing from you again real soon. So uh, definitely, uh, fingers crossed, dear listeners. That won't be the last time we hear from the awesome Kevin. And speaking of legends, you had a brilliant interview with EJ Dawson and I am so jealous that you got to chat to her. That was fantastic. I've read some of EJ's work, but super surprise for people after the interview, but we won't say it yet. I'm going to let you lead us into the interview. Well, yes, indeed. So it was an absolute pleasure talking with author EJ Dawson. Just the personality that just crackled through through my headphones and energy that just popped you know, across the computer and uh, what an amazing conversation and covered so much ground. And EJ, you know, was just so clear and giving us such great insights into, you know, what inspires her to write and, yeah. and you know, the the, uh, the the themes and those elements of writing and, you know, life in general that are both important to her and, and form, you know, a lot of her passion. So it was awesome. So, yes, I, I do agree that you're probably a little bit jealous because it was a fantastic <laughs> one. No, uh, all of our authors are fantastic. And they, they that are, is yeah. the, the the joy because, yes, we, you know, we each get to interview different people, but the best part yeah. is at the end of the day, we all get to enjoy the, the interview together. And so, yes, yeah, t- today for readers that aren't aware of some of EJ Dawson's work, she has a trilogy of books, which uh, currently are, you'll be able to find under our science fiction genre. They are at the top of the uh, the listing, so very easy to find. And it is the Queen of Spades book series. And it basically is made up of three titles. That is, title one is Awakening, title two is Darkening, and title three is Reckoning. Uh, So some very powerful words there and uh, definitely hints at some very powerful and very fast-paced stories and writing. And just, again, just a passion that really comes across as something, as a force to be reckoned with. Mm. Uh, so I might, before we Most go to definitely. the interview, I might quickly read just um, the description for book one, just to yes. give you an idea of the energy that is going to come through your fingertips when you hold a copy of this. So EJ Dawson, Awakening, Queen of Spades, book one. Ayla is a villain with a gift that allows her to see when anyone will die, she's remorseless in her profession as the perfect assassin. When she wakes up in a cryo tank 3,000 years in the future and no idea how she came to be there, all that matters is survival. Rescued by Leith and the crew of the Nuria, Ayla discovers a far-evolved world of spaceships and galactic colonisation. But everything comes with a price. And though Ayla is no princess locked in an icy tower, she still has to pay for the rescue she didn't know she needed. Given over to Leith, a darkly handsome man who reads Ayla far easier than she'd like, they must work together if Ayla is to repay her debt. As the pair come to learn how dangerous one another are, so too grows a lustful bond that comes with rules of its own. Fighting to learn why she was frozen, Ayla's dragged into Leith's past with a criminal organisation seeking to take over this sector of the galaxy. In order to survive, Leith will need Ayla's help, but Ayla doesn't know if she's willing to pay what it will cost her. So there we go. That's uh, Mm. book one, Awakening of the Queen of Spades trilogy. It's really good. Yeah, (laughs) it sounds really good. And yeah, look, and and before we jump to the interview, which is just spectacular fun, um, it gave me a a little bit of thought because I 
I was really impressed with the, the, the little bit of reading I've done of EJ's work and how fast mm-hmm. it, it gets to, to the point. It, there's a pacing yes. there that is just such you know, good action micro. writing. Yeah. 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 And something I'm very jealous of to say the least. And it got me thinking a little bit of, you know, how pace works or, or is there, you know, is there a definitive line that differentiates between one pace and another? And I thought, Hmm, science fiction. And then I thought, ah, oh, space operas and, you know, they feel like they're two different things. They feel to mm. me two different pacings. I love a good space opera, but I love a good sci-fi as well. And I thought, mm-hmm. is there a difference? And so just, um, yeah, a quick little bit of research I did, and I found that one description as far as where space operas fit in well, either a genre or subgenre. It's mm-hmm. essentially considered a subgenre. So is, what I've read yeah. is, so when it comes to space operas, science fiction is the parent genre. Space opera is a subgenre specifically targeting scientifically advanced future societies built around amazing technologies humanity spread out through the galaxy or even multiple galaxies some space opera include alien life forms but many early ones don't there are often fantastic abilities associated with space operas in addition to technology including psychic prowess advanced mental powers or unexplained abilities such as for example star wars force powers yes and a historical dictionary of science fiction defines space opera as a subgenre of science fiction which uses stock characters and settings, especially those of westerns, translated into outer space. A genre of science fiction in which the action spans across a galaxy or galaxies. A work of these genres regarded as being, this is the weird part, of an unsophisticated or cliched type. (laughs) I think it's hilarious considering space operas are just, can be mind-bogglingly complex. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, what are your thoughts? Do you think space operas carry a different pace than, say, science fiction action? Well, I think, yeah, it's going to depend on your author and it's going to depend on the story because people don't stick to the genre classifications. You know, people who try and classify them into one or the other, we need to do that as authors to make sure that we're getting to the right readers. But... You know, looking at the the latest Kalytics report, thank you, Alex Jun. Please, everybody, have a look at, at his work. There are so many subgenres of science fiction. So you've got, as well as space opera, you've got steampunk, time travel, space exploration, post-apocalyptic, metaphysical and visionary, hard science fiction, genetic engineering, galactic empire, first contact, dystopian, colonisation, alternative history, alien invasion, adventure. You've then got... You can look it up from a, um, a sort of a, a military science fiction. Uh, some of the suspense horror end up in sci-fi. Travel science fiction, romance science fiction, and just plain action-adventure science fiction. So it's so difficult to say what fits in there. But in the olden days, there was a kind of a, a hierarchy, kind of a poo-poo, this is just space opera. It's kind of, you know, glorified romance and all they've done is change the setting from, as you say, the Westerns and stuck it in space. But I don't think that does any... It gives no credence to the the skill and the imagination of people who write in that genre or subgenre because, as you say, they can be complex. The characters can still go through incredible arcs as they develop or devolve or all those kind of things. But for me, I love that it sets things in, you know, you get the chance to set it into universes that are completely different, change the rules of physics, you know, although some science fiction people don't like you to do that. They like saying that doesn't work. Um, but you, you'll often get, you know, readers arguing with authors about 
made up science fiction saying that science wouldn't work. So science fiction tends to have an element uh, of kind of that hard science there or based on one of the sciences, you know, like genetic engineering based on, you know, biology and those kind of things. So, yeah, no, I don't like that definition. No, the the historical dictionary of science fiction definition, no, I think... uh, I think that's a uh, historical definition, yes. <laughs> possibly. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm not Robert M. Uh, Peter F. Hamilton's Night Dawn trilogy, which yes. begins with reality dysfunction. Oh, like yeah. there is nothing unsophisticated or cliched about that. I mean, you've got wormholes, you've got breaks in the fabric of space, you've got Hitler, you've got Al Capone, you've got colonization, you have, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, spaceship technology that actually gives birth and therefore, you know, has the ability to, mm. to, to speak telekinetic or, or mentally, I guess. I don't know what's the correct term. But anyway, yeah, so much there. So, but uh, it was interesting that the, the and it came up yep. quite a few times just doing a bit of research. And you mentioned it yourself in the essence of basically Western set in space. And I thought, well, that's not a bad thing. I, I mean, it doesn't matter where we set anything. If it's got humans in it, it's a human tale, isn't it, really? Mm. And, I was thinking, yes, you know, that is exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And basically, okay, Westerns in space. So, what is it? It's about exploring unknown frontiers and then, depending on your discovery, having to learn the art of communication, you know, and also Survive the art of finding, yeah, yeah conf- finding common ground with other races or civilizations. Um, that mm. is that really, that is just such a fantastic story to tell and lesson to learn no matter what. Um, because obviously yeah. we've got a very disjointed world at the moment. So I think maybe space opera, I'm thinking they should be, it should be a subject in school, definitely, because uh, we've got to be able to <laughs> together as a, a few countries on this planet, let alone when we're talking about galactic uh, organisations and interplanetary. Oh, you know? yeah. So. We, we have got a lot of work to do. I'm just currently rereading uh, a really old science fiction, uh, E. Doc Smith's Lensman series, starting with Triplanetary, which I think is six or seven books, seven small books. Um, and while it's classic, you can see that it has absolutely dated. But even, you know, back then they were trying to look at humanity as a kind of uh, global patrol i can't remember what the galactic patrol i think it is i've I've only just started reading again i am struggling with some of the dialogue because i'm thinking oh man i didn't realize how much we'd moved on i think (laughs) these were written in the 80s one thing i do want to mention though is that when i was looking at the the calytics report which does just look at um, amazon but in the top 40 um, sellers on amazon eight of them are self-published so I thought that was really interesting. And there's one in the top 10 and three in the top 15. So four in the top 20. So, you know, they're right up there. And science fiction is still a very high selling uh, genre to write in. So don't stop. No, keep reading and keep yeah. writing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, that, that, that's just the beautiful thing about um, what is today, what would have been science fiction for many people 100, 200 years ago. We're living in their science fiction future world. And that means that if you've got a tale to tell, write it. And if you want to get it out to the world, get it out to the world. There's nothing stopping yeah. you. Any tale no, can be told. It. And that's a beautiful thing because it means, you know, this huge and the diversity of tales is just going to increase and the the experiences that we're going to be able to uh, live through it or learn from and and tales, you know, woven from the life experiences. It's just endless mm. out there. So mm. and, and it's no longer mm. guided or manipulated by, you know, I guess 
not manipulated, but the, the the menu is no longer dictated by one restaurant. Put it that way. It's no, uh, it, anything yeah, you can absolutely. think I about like eating, that, yeah. you'll be able to go out and get. So, <laughs> by all means. But nonetheless, speaking of, you know, a fantastic futuristic science fiction, space opera, um, amazing tales ready to ignite your imagination, let us now jump to the fabulous, the fun, the futuristic, and the wonderfully warm and always entertaining E.J. Dawson for her interview with the Australian Book Lovers. E.J. Dawson, thank you so much for doing us the honour of joining the Australian Book Lovers podcast today. How are you? I'm very well, uh, Darren. Thank you very much for having me. It's absolutely delightful to be part of the podcast. Oh, it's an absolute delight to have you. And uh, I know we've been chatting a little bit beforehand, but I haven't mentioned that I'm quite excited to be chatting with you today because, you know, you've got a huge uh, library of work and obviously a lot of experience when it comes to putting words down on paper. And I understand you've been published, self-published and traditionally published. So, so many things I wanted to have a chat with you about, but I guess the very first question before we get right into the nitty gritty aspects of writing and reading and all the fun stuff is how has 2021 been for you so far? Honestly, not as bad as I, like, I know that everyone had really, really terrible years and it was absolutely crippling, but I actually, um, one of the most interesting things about me, so I'll be upfront and I know that you're aware of this, but I actually have been diagnosed with Asperger's, which puts me on the autism spectrum. And one of the greatest things about this is it's enabled me to stay at home. And one of the things that often people with Asperger's do is they put on a mask to normalise and socialise because uh, they don't necessarily have those skills. So one of the most exciting things that I've actually been able to do is become more confident in myself as a neurodiverse person so that I can actually openly talk about it today. So while it definitely had its ups and downs, I've taken a lot of value out of the time that it's given me to be better identified with myself. Oh, that's really good to hear. And, and I mean, I think it's important that we all at some point, you know, especially after the, the, the previous year and the, the trials and tribulations have brought, there, there does come a point where I think it's so, you know, important and useful to try and look for those elements that can be a positive, can, can be that diamond out of the dirt, you know, and find something that we can carry with from these experiences with the pandemic and the shifts in all of our uh, daily lives, something that we can carry as a positive in our lives moving forward. So it sounds like you've managed to do that in a beautiful way. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, there's absolutely negative things. Like, I'll be honest, I'll, I'll throw in a negative there just to give you an idea. We actually had a bit of a shower issue in our house and we're renting. And so we were actually taking baths for most of a year oh, just no so way. that we didn't have to worry our landlord about having to the pandemic and financial stresses that everyone's under. We got to shower just last week and I can't tell you how thrilling it's been. So I think everybody had their little pros and cons uh, out of 2020. And I think that um, 2021 is shaping up to be a little bit the same, like where a lot of us are still working from home. A lot of us are still a bit nervous about these new sort of uh, variations of the virus that are coming out. And I think it is so important that we all stay as safe as possible. But there's good and bad for everyone and everyone's got different stories about it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, well no doubt you've, you've uh, had that unfortunate aspect of the bathtubs, but at the same time, you've been able to rediscover showers in a way many of us probably don't. And I have a sneaky suspicion you probably know every brand of bubble bath on the market. 
I'm, I'm going to just nip that right in the butter. And no bubble baths? No Epsom salts all the way. There was no deviation whatsoever. It, do, it did mean, though, that there was an amusing incident where I realised that I could just have a bath to relax as opposed to sort of the Japanese style of bathing, which is what we adopted, which is where you sort of scrub yourself all over and then you relax in the bath. But I didn't really relax. I was just trying to get clean. So I've gone back <laughs> to being able to relax, like actually sit there and have a bath and relax in the bath, glass of wine and a book and just be very happy. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. I've never been able, I've never been one to I'll sit in a bath and relax. Like, I can't remember the last you know, bath I've had, though it was a bit of an experience uh, when I go to Japan. And if you do go to a bathhouse and, you know, that, you basically scrub yourself on a little chair first and hose yourself down and everything. Well, then, that's then you... why we did it because that's we me both me and my husband have been to Japan um, at different times, funnily enough, because we really absolutely love the culture and the people and we both got opportunities at different times. So when this happened with our shower, we just said to the landlord, look, we'll just adapt Japanese style bathing. So um, yeah, no, definitely a change to and a convenience to be able to go back and shower, but I appreciate it a lot more having been without it. Oh, well, there you go. Especially now that we're coming into winter in, in Victoria, the, the hot showers will be a blessing, uh, a good little massage. But so you're talking about Japan. Suddenly, I, for a split second there, EJ, I was picturing myself in a Japanese bath with a TV watching Shogun, the old Shogun assassin, with the, or the, baby, uh, the baby in the cart or whatever it was called. Um, are you familiar with that one, the, the old, very old movies? Uh, look, I'll be perfectly frank. I don't know the movie that you're talking about, but I've read the book Shogun as a, pre, as a precursor to going to Japan. My mother scrambled on her bookshelf to find a book that was about Japan and Japanese culture, and she unfortunately pulled up Shogun. And I don't know if you actually read the novel, but it starts out with the Europeans being boiled alive, which was not a great thing for a 16-year-old to read. No, um, I don't think it would <laughs> No, so I actually, it was very, and I did read it because it was an interesting very westernized view of Japanese culture um, but I was already very much enamored of it through watching a lot of anime and animated series and whatnot and this is back in 1995 and 96 so it was when a lot of that was a lot less common than it is today. Oh that's a nice motorbike yeah yeah that's true no but um, as opposed to Shogun the uh, as you mentioned is probably a very heavy, heavy book. Uh, now, the uh, Shogun Assassin was, uh, it's hard to describe, but it wasn't quite a movie and it wasn't quite a series. It was kind of chopped up and made into both. But it's essentially about a father who walks the uh, feudal Japan with his uh, son, who's a baby, in a baby cart. But the baby cart has like all tricks to it. So I can whip out blades and swords. And so he would, uh, he was like a, uh, a Shogun, but I, I guess a Ronin. Or, or you know, wandering uh, mercenary who would help villages and stuff. But thinking of that, the Shogun assassin and all the crazy antics of that assassin, of course, leads me into uh, one of the reasons that we're so happy to be chatting with you today in regards to your Awakening series, uh, which is about an assassin, though probably a lot different to a, a father and son in Japan. Now, oh, so I just thought maybe for our readers out there, let, let them, and listeners, of course, listen to this podcast, you are the author of the Queen of Spades series, um, with Awakening being book one, Darkening being book two, and Reckoning being book three. So essentially the Queen of Spades trilogy. Um, now, you've also written the Last Prophecy series, and I understand Behind the Veil. But drawing back to Awakening, which is book one of the Queen of Spades, I did start to read uh, the opening chapter and uh, one thing that struck me straight away was how fast it moved it was it was a cracking pace so i guess 
there's two questions I have to open up uh, our discussions about your writing, which reads so fantastic. And that is what inspired an assassin for a character? And where did you develop that literary style of being able to have the, the moments just jump from the page and transition so fast and so grippingly? So that actually, so there's two different things that come about there. One is not necessarily a funny story. And the other one is going to immediately um, uh, indicate how much of a nerd I am to you. Okay. I'll go on with the less fun one. I'll start right. with the less fun one. So I started writing the Last Prophecy series as a steampunk fantasy series um, about uh, seven years ago now. And I knew that I was going to, it was a, it was a, it's a 21 book series that has started and I actually am resuming it. Because um, my wonderful editor Scott has uh, said that he can um, come back and help me out with it after I took a sort of a brief break from it. I told people about it and they said to me, but you're a woman, you could write romance and sell lots of books. And the kind of stare that I gave them would make, you know, some rather droll memes, you know, die in vain. Yeah, um, that probably warranted too there, those looks. Yeah, right? no, it was not very flattering. And I wanted to write a story that was about a very powerful woman who didn't need a man which a lot of stories about women that often in romance often come about where there's this kind of need. And it's not every story. And definitely you do want a man or woman or someone, a partner in your life to be, to share it with. But the, the idea that you could only sell books if it was romantic was incredibly infrontive. So I wanted to write a story that was romance, but that's not what sellability was. So immediately, of course, you turn to the next thing that sells, which is violence. Um, <laughs> Oddly and... enough, but yeah, no argument from me. Yeah, well, it, it, if you do tend to look at the two top categories, I was listening to, I think it was your podcast, in fact, that ah, mentioned that two, the two top, selling, yeah, two top selling categories as romance and mystery and crime and things. So I was looking at those two different things, and but I also knew that that wasn't really my ballpark at the time. So I came up with this idea of a woman who displaced out of time, who knew when everyone was going to die, but because of the way that everybody treated her, throughout her life as some sort of curse. She just, she ends up as quite indifferent and quite um, unapproachable and very inclined to contact or lean on other people. And that's the persona that I really started with. If you read the opening pages, she's an incredibly aggressive character. She jumps out of this 3000 year cryo fleet firing and there's, there's no stopping her. And watching her develop into a person who could fall in love throughout the trilogy because she does fall in love and it's no, there's no hiding that she falls that across the trilogy. She does develop a very strong connection to Lee. That there was all part of herself and defining who she was and what she actually wanted out of life. And she originally just thought it was just to be this curse, which she calls a gift all the time. And I internally think of it as a curse to alter the way that she, that I perceive her actions in the story, which then brings me around to why is it so fast paced? And one of the reasons is that I actually spend a lot of my time uh, and have for many, many years running role-playing games. And uh -huh. one of the things that you cannot do in a role-playing game is you cannot slow the pace down. You, ca you have to keep going. You have anywhere between three and six people sitting in front of you who are hanging off your every word, ready to tell you what they want to do about the, what is happening around them and the plot and, and everything that is that you're putting them in regardless of the role-playing setting. So I quite, quite often use the Cthulhu rulebook, which requires a lot of investigativism. And quite often your players will surprise you by being either incredibly clever or incredibly stupid. And you have to <laughs> react on the between. CD. Or, nothing in between. No, none of my players, nothing in between. 
if any of them listen to this, they'll murder me. Um, <laughs> but they do tend to, you do need to be able to have that city your pants ability to react to stuff. And I would sometimes use the techniques I use in role playing in order to move through the script, which does give me that really, that, that high pace and that high tension and that unbreathability, which is the one criticism that I take from a lot of my stories that I'm trying to sort of bring back into, into the story so that you don't have, the, the reader has moments to actually breathe and just absorb what's going on as mm-hmm. opposed to moment to moment to moment. But that first book is all action. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting um, because, you know, I, I probably, I write from a different approach and I, I tend to go in slow. I like to, you know, explore everything, sights, sounds, smells, textures, and, and then sort of frantically raise it and drop it back. So that's one approach. But then, you know, when I was reading the, uh, the opening pages of Awakening or the opening chapter, you know, I was just so jealous because it, it, it literally, you know, I mean, it is a cliche to say it jumped on the page. This really did jump from the page and it was, it just, and not only that, you know, obviously it's hard to take your author hat off sometimes. And, you know, so as an author, I was just so gobsmacked by the, I guess, command you had of being able to move at that pace. Cause look, sometimes you read stuff that's fast paced, but it's want of a better word. It's a blur because it uh, doesn't give you any anchor points. Whereas I just, I just, yeah, I thought it was fascinating. It was such a refreshing opening to a book so and that's where I sort of wanted to know or was wondering to myself like whether that was a, a style that you consciously worked to develop or whether it was something that ha- had originally come naturally and that you've you've uh, sharpened and um, made better but uh, so do you think it's it was uh, the the style that you've developed there is do you think it obviously it comes from some of the gaming side of things but is it a style that is a natural fit for you or was it something you had to work out? I definitely think that it is a natural fit for me, but I also think that I can, to some extent, I do do both. So I'm a very big believer in a slower book. So one of my favourite series by um, is called Damn Fear, and it's by Barb and J.C. Handy, and it is a much older series, but the book is basically a third of the way over before it really gets going. And so I think that when I'm writing fantasy, that I do tend to keep the fantasy audience in mind so that it's much slower paced, there's much more gradual development. There's a sense of being able to slow down a little bit. So I spent a lot of time with my last prophecy series doing that. But for mm-hmm. a sci-fi action, you are definitely expecting more, and I'm expecting more as a reader. So I played a lot of Mass Effect. I watched a lot of science fiction movies. Some of my favourite shows are Killjoys and Dark Matter. And I know that both of those are stopped. And if you haven't watched Killjoys and you do like sci-fi, I cannot recommend that series enough. Um, but I think that the that I think that when you are writing, you need to write for the audience who is going to be reading it in some regards, bearing in mind that you're not just catering them, you're catering yourself. Yes. If you're yes. an a- active reader in these genres, then you're going to be writing to what you expect the genre to be. So my, my science fiction does tend to be quite twisty and quite high-paced and quite full-on, whereas I have other series. So I actually have two books with Literary Wonderlust, which is the press in the United States, one is actually a fantasy series. It's a, a new adult book with a queer female lead who's very much uh, the bookish nerding type, but she's in a sisterhood of disciples of this religion who fight a darkness that wield magic uncontrollably throughout the land. That's much more slower pace. It's much more 
passive, it's definitely lacking, say, as much agency in that main character as opposed to Isla, who's the main character of the Queen of Spades series. And then I've got the other book with Literary Wonderlust, which is a gothic noir. So it's a paranormal, uh, ro dark romance set in 1920s Los Angeles. And it's very Ooh, that much... Good. I'm very fond of this book and it's kind of outside the norm, my normal scope of science fiction and fantasy, but it has these wonderful, subtle storytelling elements to it. And I knew that I was onto something when my mother turned around and said to me, I forgot, I was reading this and I forgot that you wrote, you wrote it. Oh, so that's always a beautiful compliment, isn't it? Particularly from one's mother, who's very well read and quite the critique. Oh, okay. So this one came with no bad critiques from mum. No, no, but she did get into a lot of trouble when she started telling everyone at the hairdressers what happened in it and it hadn't even been contracted yet. Oh, no. Yeah. You might want to uh, sit her down and discuss future There future was definitely works. words had over that particular instance and I said that she wasn't allowed to do it anymore. She wasn't going to get another book like it. Yep. Sorry, mum, you have to wait till it's on the shelf now. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> from the bookstore. Yeah. So you mentioned... Uh, uh, elements of paranormal th through there. And now Ayla, who is your assassin in the Queen of Spades trilogy, uh, as you mentioned, and as is made clear in the synopsis of the book, has the ability to foretell uh, other people's day of death. And I'm just wondering, did, was that, did that come together for you when you were putting to, like in your imagination, putting together the character? Did it start off as someone who could see uh, had that prophecy sort of ability and then became an assassin in your mind? Was it the assassin and then you uh, it developed into with that skill? Or was it something that came to you in as a package, you know, while you were dreaming up the story? So Isla was always a very interesting character to write because I have my own personal experiences with death that make me quite jaded but accepting of the subject. And I found it a very, she was a very easy character in her indifference to death to to in order to equate myself with the same with her and to get into her mindset because she ends up stop she ends up not caring about when people would die because it, while she could be an assassin and while she could control that to some extent it was she had the attitude everyone is going to die eventually you cannot control it you cannot stop it you cannot there's nothing that you can do about it that is going to change the fate that's in store for you as much as you try to as much as you try to do other things or be someone else or whatnot. One day it's going to happen to you. It happens to all of us. So she then takes that. And I started to think about when I was writing her what she was like and what made her the way that she was because I was already like, I, this is very dark for me, but I went through a period of about 10 years where I was going to one to five funerals a year and I got yeah. very cynical about, well, it, it does explain a lot about the character and is certainly a, definitely an outlet for the other emotions aside from grief I had about death. And so when I was writing this story and when I was, when I was developing Isla as a character, I wanted to know where she got it from. I knew where I'd got it from. I wanted to know where she got it from. So the, the opening prologue is actually a scene where she realises for herself for the first time, if she can't stop Seth dying, she can't stop anyone dying. And yeah, Seth is her little brother who dies right, in an yes. accident. Yeah. And it's very, it's a very short scene, but it does, it's, it's the moment. And we all have moments in our lives where they change the way that we think about death. And some people don't, you, you can sometimes tell 
when you talk to someone about death, whether or not they've actually had somebody die in their lives that was really personal and close and hurt them. And it changes the way that they think about death and the way they responded to it. So when I was developing Isla, it was about a woman who'd already been through this, but she looks at everyone. It wasn't just the people that she loved or the people she knew. It was every single person she ever saw on the street. Mm -hmm. She couldn't hide from it. She couldn't run from it. So she embraced it, but it made people scared of her too because she could change the day that they died. And it ended up being a, a weapon to her that she uses to defend herself. And it, then it became a weapon she could use to make lots of money and get rich as an assassin so that she could live the life that she wanted. But behind all of that, she is the story develops, you actually find that she, she has her own fears about it too. That's um, such a unique premise. Uh, and as, as you're talking, I couldn't help but think or feel that, you know, it's a, it's a beautifully written character and put in such a cool story because in a sense, so really from, from my perception, there's this element of existentialism that actually becomes a tool and then, you know, almost ironically, existentialism becomes a purpose to life, which is the opposite of existentialism, which, you know, when there is no purpose and there, there is no meaning in anything um so that that's interesting um and i do i do agree with you i think you know death everyone approaches death in their own way obviously our whole globe is divided you know it's at, at a fundamental point through religion which is ultimately a discussion on what happens following death um so there's there's no shortage of um ideas thoughts and beliefs that's that's for certain but you're right, it affects all of us in our own unique ways. So what I found really interesting, what you mentioned before, is rather than bring your own motivations or your own aspects and relationship with that has grown around death to the character, you've brought, you've used your emotions or I guess your your belief system or understanding of death as a springboard to then investigate the source of the character's um, relationship with death, which I think that's a fascinating approach. Uh, look, it definitely had it definitely has that part of me in it, and I don't deny that for this for a moment. But I think the other part that is worth acknowledging here is going on a complete segue talking about my the this gothic noir in behind the veil. So obviously, I ha do have this close association, and I am writing it out of my system, and my stories have evolved out of time over time as I do sort of express myself because as a writer, that's what you're doing, and my thoughts about death, about the way that it affects our lives. But Behind the Veil's premise is really interesting because it acts as almost as a counter to Queen of Spades in that it's set in the past. It is also paranormal. And the main character in it actually has the ability to read the veil between life and death. So what she does is it's set shortly after World War I and she spends her time giving uh, occult sessions to people who've been affected by death people who are grieving and they don't know how to end that grief. And she does it because she w wanted the same thing after her husband died, but she had latent psychic abilities that made her able to see his spirit that was haunting her. But she went to a psychic who, who she had an extraordinarily bad experience with, which I won't, will not spoil, but it meant that she was able to awaken her own psychic abilities and she helps give comfort that she was unable to, to give as a kind of penance. So she, there are a lot of scenes in that book uh, where she's giving, she's talking to people who've lost someone, 
in ordinary circumstances or extraordinary circumstances and giving them comfort and the ability to move on past their grief. Well, so you're definitely covering quite a, quite a spectrum of the death and its uh, relationship with the living, so to speak, um, and, and grief and the ability to not so much conquer grief. I don't think you conquer grief, but the ability to make peace. So from Queen of Spades to the last prophecy, it sounds like you do shift right across that sundial, so to speak, which is interesting because um, when I read that opening chapter and uh, obviously you were kind enough to answer some questions prior to the interview uh, uh, through email and I, you did say something about how names, uh, names play an important part in when you're writing. And I had a little bit of a look into the name Ayla, who is the main character of the Queen of Spades series. And I found it a very basic definition to have three basic definitions, which is, I think it was Turkish based, uh, to mean oak tree, halo or moonlight. And now I, I thought it was quite unique then, but after what you just told me about the themes behind, behind, behind the veil, um, it, it makes it even more so because, I mean, that, that's three very unique attributes that I guess together they conjecture, uh, a conjure, sorry, a, a strange, like a juxtaposition between, for me, when I'd sort of read those three words, between a tree of life, the division between death and the eternal, and, you know, that, that, that moonlight part being that mysterious uh, spiritual element. Uh, was that something, is that how you read into the name or... Was there, was there a particular reason you chose Ayla? There is a very particular reason I chose Ayla, and it's actually a massive spoiler for book two in the series. Oh, okay. But you are, you are dead on the money, um, and it's definitely got its own purpose. And, in fact, originally I, I went through several renditions of this book. So this book was written from a first-person perspective um, from a very angry really? woman back in, two, yeah, back in 2015. And I wrote it and I thought about um, self-publishing it. And in the end, I just put it on the back burner because I wasn't happy with it. And I knew that it was going to be part of a greater series because my muse is an evil little creature who likes to make more of these stories that I'm ready to actually write. And so I wrote book two and part of three, uh, but I wasn't happy with them. So I went back later on at the suggestion of someone else and a writer friend of mine and changed it to... Uh, third person part of the reason i did that and i'm not even gonna lie about it part of the reason i did that was very uncomfortable writing sex scenes because the book does have sex scenes and there's not many of them and they are not graphic erotica because i'm not comfortable writing that but they they're definitely moments where that that does happen and yes spoiler alert isla and leaf do get together <laughs> it is a romance um well see so, the thing is if you're writing violence it doesn't it doesn't really matter but i think if you want to write an explicit sex scene one phrase or word out of place and you'll you'll take the reader straight out of it because it becomes complete cheese oh absolutely but the other thing you do remember is that i wanted to write this as a romance that wasn't about um it wasn't about the man and what I've tried to do with Leith is I've written somebody who's actually take a lot of the attributes of my husband. He's very patient. He's very understanding, but he's also incredibly sexy. So he does certainly, there are certain ways that he talks to Isla or deals with the way that Isla behaves in order to evoke a emotional response from her that is driven by desire. And, but he does it in such a way that uh, throughout that very first story, 
he makes it clear that he's not to be you. He's not about to give in to his desire to have sex with her, for her to use him and discard him in order for her to uh, go and live her own life and escape from effectively being dependent on him. Not that uh, she couldn't do that if she really wanted to, but throughout the book series, he does everything he can to help show her what the future is like, show her what she's capable of, but also teach her how to live which is the other part of the whole death thing. He teaches her that before she was frozen, she didn't really have a life. She ate and she drank and she slept with guys and did all of that stuff, but she wasn't alive. She wasn't living her best life. And it's one of the things that Leaf actually teaches her. And just touching back on her name for a moment, in the original story, when it was first person, he was actually called Leaf. Aha. I see, I see, I see. So a halo under a moonlit sky on an oak tree. Say no more for Leaf. Uh, no, that's very interesting. And you, you said obviously uh, Ayla doesn't need a man in this instance, but does he does he kind of represent uh, when you say he teaches how to live? But it's but is it also due to the fact that she travels to the future in this in essence, or is cryogenically frozen and then uh, brought back out? Does does his role become an educator in that sense as well? Oh, absolutely. So he ends up in, it's almost like he, he's a very emotionally intelligent person. And um, that's often a, a lot of credit that um, we often, when we're talking about emotional intelligence, we often talk about women and it's not fair because there are a lot of very emotionally intelligent men out there who are deemed as uh, passive or waiting for the girl or whatever, as opposed to in a lot of action where you have a very aggressive man. And I'm going to give you a really controversial example. Please the do. The scene in Star Wars where Han Solo kisses Leia. Okay. In the confines of the, the Millennium Falcon when they're repairing it is overtly aggressive. Now I've loved Star Wars for years, always have. But if you look at the subtext of it, in other circumstances, um, yes, sure, in the movie she kisses him, but if that was in other circumstances and she said no, what would have happened? And I always think that in a lot of these stories and whatnot, if the guy makes the first move, if the guy is pushy enough, we've been kind of taught that that's sexy. And it's really not. It's really, there's a, there's a huge subtext of consent in that scene. And in, in fact, a lot of scenes, I mean, one of the things that really strikes you about Harrison Ford when you start to look at him is not just him and himself, but the what he represents at that time period, which is very impacting on me because I grew up watching a lot of Harrison Ford movies. So Blade Runner in the scene with the droid that if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. There's, you know, and even the scenes where he's looking at love interests in the Indiana Jones films. And I, I love Harrison Ford. I'm a massive fan of him. But when you step back from those and you look at them more objectively, a lot of them don't have consent. I, you'll get no argument from me here, and you're absolutely right. And look, when it comes to movies, at least, especially uh, perhaps late 70s, but probably no bigger uh, criminal at it than the 1980s. Uh, mm -hmm. Because like you said, it was it was basically the staple of romance or of where, you know, boy chases girl, girl denies boy, boy persists to like almost creepy stalker level and but this hasn't changed this is the thing that bothers me this has not changed we've put an idea of what sexual attraction is on the idea that you need to be pursued beyond your consent 
Twilight is a perfect example. Fifty Shades is a perfect example. And I know that's a whole other rabbit hole I don't want to particularly fall into today. That's right. It couldn't because I haven't read or seen either of them. I've read both. I've read both so I can criticise them. I'll be perfectly frank. Um, And I think that one of the things, and just retouching back on the purpose of Leith, Leith I often get from romance readers, he's too passive. But to a lot of other readers, uh, they really respected his emotional intelligence to get him to get, and this is done within the first book. He actually says to Isla, I'm not going to sleep with you until you ask for me and mean it and you actually do want me. You're not just saying it because you plan to escape or to run away or any of that stuff. You say it and you mean it because you want me. You don't just want to get laid. You don't just want to use me. You actually want me. And I think that that's very strong emotional point for a man to have because we often allocate those emotions to what a woman wants. I want you to want me. I don't want you to see me for sex. I don't want you to, you know, use me for a good time. I want you to want me. And this is the purpose. And this goes back to that original guy who turned around and told me to write romance because it sells. The way we view romance and the way that the romance genre is set up is slowly changing, but the amount of money that's made off romance is about non-consensual romance in a lot of circumstances and women don't have a lot of capacity to change what they view as sexy because it's physically ingrained within us that if we want a man more than our consent matters then we must matter that much to him yeah that's a really interesting point and i look i'm not overly familiar with the the romance side of things as far as you know like the 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 big industry of romance novels um you know i'm a science fiction horror man so and non-fiction but it it does make me uh just sit here and and quietly think to myself or question um because i think you you make absolutely valid points but if if we were to take for example a snapshot of 90 percent i'll say of the uh, of the romance the current you know the biggest selling romance books that perhaps are guilty or at least partly guilty of the these uh, emotional uh, or consent issues that you've raised. I'm wondering, and, and it's a ser- like legit question, I'm wondering what you might, your thought would be on what would be the percentage of authors that were female versus male? So I guess is it, because it's, if the, for example, if, if it's uh, the romance audience, for example, let's assume for the moment that a good majority of it is ladies, and is it men writing for themselves as these um, characters that are willing to go beyond the consent lines of that, that are now well established and or at least should be well established or is it just a I guess an archetype that is just refuses to go away by even by no matter who's writing it I think that you'll find that the majority the majority of writers are men the majority of popular writers are men I mean I just googled it and, in the, in and the immediately, romance. That's such a, that's oh, sorry, sorry, not in romance. Sorry, not in romance. I just meant in general fiction. But if you're being specific oh, okay. to romance, sorry, if you're being specific to romance, no, the majority of writers are definitely women. Um, but I do think that they do fall back on the Mills and Boone, the uh, the traditional bodice rippers and whatnot. And I don't think that there is anything wrong with that because a lot of the time what you're writing in romance is you're writing a happily ever after. It is a core part of what it is to write a romance novel is to is to write that the, it, they're called HEAs or H, well, no, no uh, one's, HFN. No one's, 
which is happy for now. Okay, I was going to say, no, there's, there's never going to be a genre, a top-selling genre called divorced. No, well, <laughs> this, think... but this is the thing. You, This is the thing. I find that romance is now diversified as uh, the um, is diversified. You can find a niche for it. It's a, there's a very common and very unsavory law on the internet, which is called Rule 34. Basically is this. If, if you can think of a concept, there's going to be porn of it on the internet in some way, shape or form. And I think for romance, you probably find that absolutely there is. And I'll give you a really good example. Uh, recently in Australian politics, there was the uh, catchphrase, which is, and please excuse me, but it was, I'm going to just delete my own words, but it was big swinging D-I-C-K. And that was about uh, the Australian Liberal Party. But my scandalous searching of this particular tag, I also noticed an author capitalising on it by selling her erotica set in Australian Parliament House, you know, and I think that with a lot of the writing genre and the, the romance genre, there is a romance out there that's based around divorce. You will absolutely find it, especially, oh, yeah, of course. you know, in, in, in erotica. And yes, in that regard, a lot of them are women, but men are definitely rising to the occasion. They're making a speciality of it. I don't think it's as much as their field anymore, which brings me back to my original point, a lot of that is not very well acknowledged as opposed to uh, romance is often treated as a very cheap writing. Yeah, and I don't know why because, I mean, it's it's funny, you know, because it's one of the biggest sellers. So there's nothing cheap about a genre that people love passionately. And, you know, and, and sure, it's easy to just think romance mills and boon, but that's just not the case at all. Romance has just got so many different avenues. It's like any genre. I mean, you could go to horror, for example, and just look for books, which is just about the whole thing. It's just the focus on how the serial killer chopped up bodies with no real story. You know, that's that's not horror, but there is a genre, there is a subgenre like that. And I suppose that, that same applies to every genre. There's like there's elements that probably aren't popular to a certain degree, but have their audience. But yeah, look, r- romance is uh, where would we be as a society, as a human race without love? And I think it's one of those eternal questions of how do you discover love? How do you nurture love? You know, so the, the books are never going to end. But as far as the the aspect of consent that you've raised, um, look, I think you're absolutely right. But at least we have someone like yourself who is willing to slowly change those rules or those perceptions or perhaps just start to introduce characters that can remind readers and authors that it doesn't have to be the way it's always been. Absolutely and I think that the other thing too is I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm not the only author doing this. I have quite a lot of authors that I absolutely love. Um, I was not ever originally going to write romance. I was never originally interested in writing a romance but that didn't change the fact that I had a friend who was incredibly uh, interested in it and wrote and wrote a lot of things in it. And she actually, uh, it doesn't exist anymore, which is quite unfortunate, but there was a bookshop in Melbourne called Rendezvous and they wrote, it was a solely a romance bookstore. And it was wonderful because I walked into it with the kind of cynicism you sort of expect from a lot of, from a lot of people which I've since learned, since learned is not appropriate or appreciated. No, definitely this place. Um, no, and I fully admit that. But I walked through this store being vaguely amused at all the, all the bodice rippers and then I saw a book cover of a woman's, uh, a woman's profile from sort of her chest upwards 
and she had a band-aid on her neck and it was a girl's guide to vampires by Katie McAllister and I thought okay and it had a tagline on the cover and I but it had basically a step-by-step guide and being an absolute massive philosophy fan I decided that this author obviously had a sense of humor and I bought the book and I had spent years being hooked on Katie McAllister books because one of the things that she did that I absolutely loved was that um, she definitely had her pushy, pushy love interests, like guys who were expressing how much they really wanted the the female characters in the book. Mm-hmm. By the same token, she was very respectful when the character said no, it meant no. And I think that uh, that's often when we're talking about a lot of the Me Too subjects and everything else is not wildly acknowledged as being attractive in a lot of fiction, but that is changing. It is slow. It is certain. There is certainly instances of where uh, this is very interesting territory in regards to Fifty Shades, in regards to what actually saying yes means and whether or not you're saying yes to just having intimate relationships or you're saying yes to something else. But it definitely... For me, Kate, the way Katie McAllister pictured that was that she could still, she could have her cake and eat it. So the way that she wrote it was that you could have somewhat pushy male love interests, but that she would not step over that somewhat blurry line that for a lot of women, they aren't able to distinguish it themselves, which differentiates between what is strictly consensual and what is non-consensual. Yeah, and I think at some point, uh, at some point, a refreshing change has to be brought in because is it how long can you play with the same trope over and over again? Uh, you know, sooner or later, the right tropes, I guess, or new tropes and more more compassionate tropes are going to come through. But I definitely think it's something that uh, is you know bubbling to the surface now. I know, I, I look, obviously, when you read, you read on your own. So, but when it comes to say, for example, if I'm sitting with a couple of guys watching a movie, so I like my retro movies, so we're usually watching something from the '80s. Uh, but even some of the newer stuff we go to the cinema. But when, if we do see that, it's it's basically the butter jokes now because it's so, for us, it's like, oh, my God, you know, who, who wrote this bloody screenplay or whatever it might be. So, yeah, I, I definitely think it's there's a wind of change coming, absolutely. It's been blowing for quite a while. And I think, you know, maybe so lucky you work, walked into Rendezvous and, and now I'm sure you're very happy to be writing romance with these science fiction and fantasy and, and paranormal elements. Oh, look, absolutely. I think that I, I definitely, it's definitely not all that I write. So um, I think that romance definitely has its place in a lot of stories. And regardless of the fact that you categorize something as a romance or not a romance, there are a lot of books out there that are technically romances because they do contain core plots about two people who are attracted to one another and who get together in the end. Mm. And that is the core two components you need for a movie and i'll give you a really good example i like to use actually is the fifth element oh i've been a while since i've seen it but it's a good movie definitely i know but it's a romance yeah you got me on that one because i'm trying to remember who got so effectively so bruce willis and uh bruce willis and Mila Mila and basically she's the fifth element and he's just a cab driver and he ends up saving her and they go on this weird science fiction journey together where he She's sort of trying to work out uh, what people mean because she sees a lot of violence and a lot of cruelty and a lot of death and she's uh, learning about the world and the way that it works and trying to find meaning and purpose in that while you've got Bruce Willis who's 
used to doing violence and he, he's playing Bruce Willis. I mean, honestly, yeah, of what, course, what, yeah. what was the character description? I can remember most, <laughs> and, but I just couldn't, I couldn't remember if they got together or not. They do. In the very end, they end up together. Oh. So, and I think that's, I think that's the thing about the way that I've the written this, this story with Queen of Spades is that there are a lot of stories out there that are not about the romance, but the romance is definitely a huge part of it. And I think it's part of our basic desire to, to belong to want and to be wanted. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the reason why uh, consent matters and it's part of the reason why it's such a popular, popular genre, but we've been made to feel so ashamed of it because quite often it involves the very touchy subject of sex. And one of the reasons that I'm very careful in the way that I write my scenes is because I don't want to... There are quite... Uh, and I'll be upfront about this. There are quite... a few scenes in Queens of Spades across the entire trilogy when it is just about them having sex. It's not about the emotional connection and it's for stress relief and it's for whatever's happening in the story. And it's because of what Isla's going through or what Leith's going through at the time based on sort of where you are. And it's because we do definitely use it as a stress relief and as a coping mechanism and also a way to connect, really connect with another human being, which helps really ground us. It helps remind us of what's important and it helps remember us to enjoy life and being alive that's right and you said the magic word human being and and you know i, I don't think there's like any there shouldn't be any shame or anything the the sex in a book can be for a myriad of different reasons as long as for me as long as it, it comes across as representation of what it means to be human unless of course there's some weird space alien race but um do you know what i mean i, like, I promise you, you that that's not something that's going to come up Although no. I'm not going to lie, there is, there is, um, so the, the, there is only one alien in my entire series and his presence is incredibly purposeful. And it's also just about who we are, um, as people like part, and I'm really enroaching upon spoilers for book three, but it is really about who we are as people and what it is that we tend to do as a species. My favorite subject of absolutely, well, Sides of a lot of them, but no, as in uh, the human race as a species, you know, uh, because you can look at it as uh, it becomes a character on its own. And it, I think it's such a fascinating thing to look at, especially when you incorporate another, an external viewpoint. For example, you've just uh, introduced possibly an alien uh, that that may be looking. And so I'm guessing you at some point you can delve into the state of the human race without being part of the human race. I think I, I guess is the point I'm trying to make, which can be fun. It definitely can be, and I'm not going to enroach on that. I mean, I'm not, I'll, I, I think that everybody has their own things that they do and don't like about science fiction and the way it treats aliens and whatnot. So you can have, I'm a massive fan of Gareth Powell. He writes the Embers of War series, which is just absolutely delightful. His, his prologue is upsetting in just how well it's written. It's absolutely staggering, and I can pretty much recall it word from word to this day. And I think the way that you, you have aliens is just as another species or another different mindset in your stories is really, really interesting because you have that different viewpoint and all the stupid thing we do, like microwaving pizza. But I think that there's, you know... <laughs> yes, come on, people, we have air fryers now. Yeah, no. Well, it's that, it's that joke that goes into, I think it's from Tumblr, that talks about how we prefer our food at certain frequencies as opposed to other frequencies, talking about the way that heat works. Um, but another but another series that I admire very much was the um, Anne Aguirre series. I think her name is Anne Aguirre. 
who, when she talks about aliens in that series, is done with this kind of different mindset that I really like the depth that she went into with the character development for one of the alien species that the main character throughout the entire series, Samantha Jacks, gets familiar with. And that particular character to me just really presented this alternate viewpoint of the way that we view the world and the things that we do, but came with its own baggage about the way they view the world and how it inflicts what they do. And I think that's the wonderful thing about um, the wonderful thing about science fiction and fantasy is you can really start to say to yourself, okay, this doesn't make sense. This isn't this. There is a lot that's wrong with the way that we as human beings think about the world. Well, by its, almost by its very nature, you have to think in a, on a galactic level, really, for a lot of sci-fi. And that means, okay, what if what if we're not the only species, or uh, which you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, if somebody says, oh, "I don't believe in aliens," like by 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 the very definition of the word, we are an alien. So it, it, I could never work out that logic. It's like we're on a planet, we're alive. The definition of alien isn't whether we can communicate with them or not. It's just can they exist? Yes, they can exist because we are. We do, but uh, yeah, you're right. I really like that philosophy. I really like that philosophy. Well, I can't understand how we could be defined as anything else, but, you know, uh, I mean, alien, we're, we're terrestrial here, but as far as in a galactic viewpoint, we are an alien. It's, I mean, that's obvious. So to say that there can't be others is uh, neither here nor there. But speaking of science fiction, and you obviously have a big love of science fiction and fantasy and, and even romance. And so we're, we're talking here about uh, thinking galactically and whatnot. And you, you obviously very, very, uh, oh, what's the word for it, I guess, um, productive when it comes to your writing because you, you've just got so much work out there. But, and you mentioned that you went back and actually started, rewrote the Queen of Spades series from a uh, first person to third person. So there's a lot of work involved. But I also read that part of your writing process, uh, music is a, plays a very significant role as far as in sitting at your desk. So I have to ask, uh, EJ, when you're writing, for example, if you're writing science fiction, do you sit there and write with a backdrop of, say, for example, like futuristic soundscapes or, uh, or when you, if you're writing a little bit more of a fantasy edge, do you have those symphonic, very big, sweeping music? Or do you prefer traditional music and just go with the flow? That's a very interesting question for me. So I'll preface this by stating that as somebody who is neurodiverse, I'm very effectively... Um, I'm very effectively influenced by overwhelming emotions from certain input and I definitely use sound as a purposeful tool to trigger certain emotions in order to get me into the right headspace to write. But having said that, I tend to have a very, uh, very set series of actions that I do when I'm going to start writing a novel. So writing Queen of Spades was written to a lot um, of Battlestar Galactica, but also a lot of Angry Girl music. I'm not even going to lie about that one. Uh, but I also listen to a lot of alternative music. So, for example, in my last Prophecy series, I have a series. One of the particular books is set in an alternate. Um, the whole entire series is set in an alternate Earth. So a lot of the names are meant to evoke the British Empire or the Russians and whatnot. And I have effectively got uh, an American visiting the KGB um, but um, one of the stories that comes immediately after it is called A Phantom Presence, and it's about a police officer working 
almost against the KGB to track down a series of, mur um, of murders and strange events and whatnot. And that was actually written to the soundtrack for Ender's Game. So, oh, which okay. is obviously the science fiction. Yeah, no. So I often will, will do that. I'm writing a, I'm actually writing my first openly neurodiverse space opera. And I've listened to a lot of uh, very alternative music. One of the people I listen to a lot is Scala, who they do a lot of um, trancey, relaxed, deep, soothing sort of tones that do tend to still have their pressure moments. Um, there's one song in particular I've listened to a lot writing this. It's called Delax Bedroom is the name of the song. And okay. it's just got this soothing backdrop trance kind of feel to it. And it's because a lot of the time the main character is moving in her own awkward neurodiverse reality that is beyond her control and she's very responsive to. She doesn't, she waits for things to happen and then responds to them as opposed to when she's hacking, which she does via virtual reality, where she's a lot more active but a lot more confident because everything's in her control. So everything that I write, I will be able to say I wrote this story to this soundtrack yeah and that's so beautiful. yeah everything that i do there'll be a soundtrack a lot of instrumental so i don't like voices because they tend to tell you what they want you to think whereas instrumental just allows you to feel regardless of its synth techno baseline or, or whether it's completely um operatic sort of um instrument like just completely uh, instrumental music yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I've got no doubt you could probably remember each soundtrack for each book you've written too. Uh, I'm probably, I mean, I, I love working with music, but I do it a little bit of a different way. Uh, I'm, I'm very similar. I think we're both on the same page when it comes to the emotional impact that music can have, or especially certain inputs. Um, so for example, if I'm trying to write, uh, I can't listen to music because it will actually take over my emotions and it will I find it can interfere with when I'm working on a scene uh, however saying that as soon as I've finished the first draft then I've got to get in there and start with that magical scalpel and start editing depending on each chapter or each scene I will play instrumentals of course whatever music is going to match that scene and so it feels I get it's like a rediscovering the story for the first time because it's kind of like the going back from a silent no not a silent movie but going back in and adding a whole new magic element to the story and then the pulse so if it's an action scene there's like action music and then those edits i make are going to be really in line with the mood that i'm in but uh so it can it's definitely a, a powerful tool so interesting to hear how you utilize music definitely and i am i am in that wonderful space where i can listen to a song i repeat for hours and part of it's just my personality and part of it is the fact that i'm neurodiverse and can get hyper focused and obsessed with the particular song so i will often use a particular song on repeat to write a scene and i use discord to do writing sprints so i just put the emotion and how I feel into the writing as I'm listening to the song and then I go back and cut out all the trash uh, to make it much more streamlined and much smoother but then you also and this is going to bring this right back around to what we were talking about before because I'm listening to a lot of high tension music in a lot of high tension stake scenes it means that the writing comes across as pretty breathless because in a lot of high action scenes you don't have that you don't have that moment to breathe 
And um, I think it's both what's what's a lot of people like, but can be a detriment to to my own writing because I'm confident enough in my own abilities as a writer to to criticize the inherent flaws I have uh, with my methodology. And I work on improving them as everyone does when yeah, they're course. trying to do this. But also it's a very useful tool to be able to acknowledge that that's what it is that I'm doing and then use it appropriately. It's interesting because you mentioned time sprints and that's actually one uh, question I've written down that I wanted to talk to you about. You, uh, in the questions you answered kindly enough for us, you did mention that you use time sprints to get words down the page. So I was just wondering if, uh, for our writers out there, if you can maybe elaborate uh, very briefly how the, how that the time sprints approach works and, and how did you come across it? How did you discover it? So that's going to go right back to when I started to learn how to write back in 2014, I decided to be part of the first NaNoWriMo, my first NaNoWriMo. So for those of you who don't know what NaNoWriMo is, NaNoWriMo is an international competition over the month of November where you challenge yourself to start a new project and write 50,000 words in that project. And so a lot of people use it as a great tool to jumpstart books, to get through their word counts, to really build up on their stories. It's a very great introductory tool for new writers because you spend a lot of time making new friends, learning from industry professionals and helping develop you as a writer, but encouraging you to keep going. One of the key things that you often find about new writers is that they can't finish a story. And sometimes it's that they, it's the whatever story that they want to write or whatever they've been inspired to write doesn't have the hook or the girth that it needs in order to finish it. And sometimes just about not being lazy and sitting down and doing the work mm-hmm. because at the end of Don't the day, say that. The, no, I'm very sorry. I'm a Darren. I'm going to rip this bandaid off. You got to sit down and you got to do the work. And one of the beautiful things about time sprints is that you need to sit down for the set time. You can do nothing else. And this is very self-disciplined. You can do nothing else but write during that time period. And when you're starting out, you'll go, okay, I'm going to do 15 minutes of nonstop writing. And you'll write 50 words and cry and wail and carry on and say, you'll never be a writer. And that's just the start because it's like everything that you learn how to do. You always start out a bit wonky. You're never going to be perfect. I've been doing this over seven years now and I can write 3,000 words in an hour and they're not all crap. That's a pretty damn good effort. It takes years to get to that level. It takes a long time and it takes not a daily writing habit. I don't write every day. So I'm here to tell you all those people telling you you have to write every day are wrong. I definitely spend time on writing. Like I'm here doing the podcast. I'm going to be doing a bit of editing later and maybe a little bit of writing, but I didn't do any writing yesterday and I did spend a lot of time working on writing. I was plotting out another novel. So you don't have to write every day, but writing sprints are a great way to make it a habit, which is what you want to do if you want to finish that novel. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just wondering, over those years of using time sprints, now you mentioned you can get basically, what did you say, 3,000 words, 5,000 words in an hour? Uh, 3,000, I'll be... (laughs) I don't think I can type fast enough concurrently oh. to do 5,000. Let's do 3,000. My best score has been 3,000 words in an hour. I will average between two and 3,000 words an hour nowadays. And But more importantly, you, you said you've reached a point where they're not all shit. So, um, which makes me wonder, is it like a muscle in the sense of, have you trained yourself to get to that point mentally? And I guess in that wheelhouse of your imagination, so, but when you sit down at the keyboard, uh, have you 
have you worked out a way where you have the idea in your head, but then you've taught yourself how to transcribe it almost into a sentence format before you sit down to the keyboard? So that's so in essence, are you doing a lot of the actual writing in your head? Do you know what I mean? Like you're actually subconsciously or consciously creating the sentence, the very sentence structures that's going to appear on the page, or is it just that you've uh, do, you think you've developed that ability to just stream your thoughts out as they and let them flow? I'm going to do do you one a little bit further here, Darren. What I'm going to Excellent. do is I'm gonna I'm gonna yes, absolutely, and I think it's because I've spent a lot of time. Uh, at one point in time, I was working with five different editors on five different scripts. I'm used to getting a lot of critical feedback from my writing. I'm used to being told uh, how to write correctly and being tutored how to do a better job of writing. And with all of these uh, influences and this ability to accept critique of my writing, it, it does definitely help you develop as a writer. And what I want to do is express that when I first started writing if you look at my the first no, novella that I published, it's not the first novel I wrote, it was the first novella I published. I haven't gone back and edited that as severely as it needs to based on my experience now, knowing that I wrote it seven years ago and that it doesn't have the it doesn't have the context, it doesn't have the emotional maturity or depth of what an opening scene requires. So if you go back and you read that opening scene, it's about a airship captain called Katarina Salisbury and she's basically describing what she's wearing which is a terrible way to start a book it's a terrible way to start a book <laughs> as opposed to and I'd like to just read a small snippet from my latest draft please do absolutely um just to give you an idea of the difference now this is completely unedited I've literally just opened it on my computer but as opposed to that first draft that was polished by an editor and went over with multiple multiple times as it if you use it in comparison against uh, this story that I'm writing about steampunk uh, thieves in this alternate world where a young woman is out to try and get her crown back after her uh, father is kicked out in favour of a democracy. And this is the opening scene. Rats scuttled over stone through the sloshing excrement of Cresta and over my boots. Once I would have screamed, a past attempt at hissing earned only bite scars. You did not fuck with the rats of Caresta. Not after a mad scientist bought his concoction to make people stupid into the sewer system rather than let the authorities take it. The vile green goo permeated, permeated not the humans, who quite frankly didn't need the IQ drop, but the rats. Only they'd gotten smarter. With slitted eyes, I watched the rats move in single, single file, some carrying food, wire, one a bundle of cloth tied to its back with string. One rat among the throng stopped and turned its head. Jade eyes glittered at me. One rat you could stomp on, 50 was a problem. I closed my eyes, forced my tense body to relax against the slick stone and sighed. There was a rustle and the rats moved on. Kind of throws you straight into the moment, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think that's the thing about learning to be a writer. You don't become a good writer overnight. And this is the thing I really want writers to walk away with if you are an aspiring writer, is that had mistakes. That's had lots of mistakes. I can look at that and go, how many times did I say only in that sentence? But as a sprinter, that shows the development as opposed to somebody who's never written a book before trying to write in their opening scene as opposed to somebody who's been writing for seven years opening writing their opening scene mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and this is the thing about anything it's like riding a bike it's like learning how to be a professional gymnast 
or Archer or Baker or Nita. You start out with the general tools. You get some people to help you and guide you. You put a lot of yourself into it until you can start coming up with something that people will want to read. And that's all there is to it. It's like any other skill. And after that, it's just about where you'd like that skill to take you. And part of that is, you know, discovering what kind of a writing journey you'd like to go on. Do you just want to write that one book inside of you and then you'll be happy with that? Are you looking at turning writing into a uh, profession? Because you can be a professional in this industry and still not be a full-time writer. Um, I think the statistics are quite... Um, quite dis uh, disheartening to hear that many of us can't write full-time and those of us that do still run into the struggles that you will run into as a, a writer with a job. And it, that's all about the creativity and the editing and coming up with a good story that people want to read. Yeah, uh, no truer words are spoken. And you're right, you can, you can be a professional author but still need to work. I mean, it all just depends on, on uh, there's just so many things. But first and foremost, it's a craft, you know, you can bring skill to the craft, but that skill isn't going to come with the mastering of the craft. Uh, it may give you an edge, for example, if you, if you come with a bunch of skills, you know, natural skills, like an athlete or a musician or a scientist or a physicist or whatever it might be, but the craft itself is not anything that can, will be mastered overnight. And it, it takes other people. It takes, yourself learning it's it's that whole educational approach and journey um and I, it's obviously something that you've taken very passionately and i mean five different titles five editors that's that sounds like a uh, psychedelic nightmare to me already but um now obviously you began your 21 book series in 2014 and now you entered the self-publishing world around 2016 and then you were actually published for Beyond the Veil in 2019. I have to quickly jump on you there. Oh, please the do. Veil doesn't have a release date as yet. Oh, sorry, uh, signed I, the publishing contract, my apologies. I signed the publishing contract in 2019. My sincere apologies. And we, I am crossing my fingers for a publication date of this year. Yes, But we're so just doing some, yeah, finalisation. That script, I'll be perfectly frank with you, that script did require a lot of edits because I wrote it in 25 days. And that's just, I wrote that when I realized that I would need to stop self-publishing because me and my husband were trying to save for a house. And I hired an incredibly good editor in Scott and he was absolutely wonderful and absolutely patient. And he has taught me lessons that I still carry with me um, to this day in regards to writing my writing and the way that it is I'm, that I'm expressing myself. He was an invaluable teacher, but you want to pay an editor their due worth. If you are self-publishing, one of the things, and I cannot stress this enough, is you need outside opinions. You definitely need to get look at getting an editor to make your work as polished as it can be. And even then, I got pulled up in a review of Queen of Spades where the review wasn't as flattering as it would have been because she thought that I hadn't got an editor. Where I had got an editor, I'd had two very devoted um, critique partners. I had a copy editor and I had a proof editor, which shows that mistakes still filter through the system. So if you are looking at self-publishing, I cannot stress enough that you do need an editor, but you want to pay them for the work that they're doing. It's only fair. And that was very expensive for me, which is why I turned to uh, I stopped writing the last prophecy series and I just wanted to write something completely different. And I started out with an idea and I sent the first chapter 
to a friend of mine and she said to me, and I said, what do you think of this? Is this a short story? What's going on with this? And she read the first chapter of Behind the Veil and said to me, no, this is a whole novel and you need to write it now because I need it now. Hmm. Yes. Always good feedback. Yes. No, she's very <laughs> lovely. So obviously you, you are transitioning from, well, you signed the, the, the traditional publishing contract in 2019, but when it came to, you obviously put a lot of work in self-publishing and I couldn't agree more as far as the importance of an editor uh, or at the very least have multiple people read it so that any issues can be seen because, oh, you can read your own sentence 20 times and it's like that uh, psychological video test thing with the bear that walks past the screen and nobody notices it because you're watching everybody bounce balls. Uh, you just will not see stuff, even if you think you've gone to it with a microscope and a scalpel. Uh, sorry, but I call question... it looking for butter in the fridge. <laughs> ah, there you go. Of course, it's not in there. You're definitely 100% sure it's not in there. And then someone goes and pulls it out and make toast. Yes. But what, when it came to, I'm just curious, when it, when it came to your marketing for your self-published series, have you got any hints, tricks or tips that you found was oh, what affected Absolutely. And if you actually head over to my website, uh, ejdawson.com, I've written many articles on the basics of marketing and what you kind of need. A lot of people find the whole idea of having to market incredibly intimidating. And as somebody who is neurodiverse and very internal and withdrawn a lot of the time, and it's taken me a long time to be more external and outgoing, one of the hardest things you can do is marketing. One, because it requires you to be outgoing. Two, because it's expensive. There is no other way to say it is. And one of the things that I want to reassure people is that there, as somebody who turns to more traditional publishing because I couldn't afford my own editor, there are cheaper ways to go about it. And the most that you can do is research. Do your research. There are so many resources out there. There are so many people who are willing to help share their information. There's all different things from having uh, social media platforms that you can micromanage so that you don't have to feel... Um, awkward or stressed out about performing on them daily to places where you can advertise your novel or give it away, uh, give it away um, to book bloggers so that they can do a, put a review on it uh, for you on places like Goodreads and Amazons. There are many tools out there to help you do this. The intimidating part of being a self-published author is being your own marketer being to a large extent your own editor, resourcing the people you need to do the parts you can't do, finding a cover artist, talking about making actual physical hard copies of your book and whether you decide to do that through Amazon or whether you decide to do that from Ingram Spark. For every question you out there, there are hundreds if not thousands of authors like myself who have done it and who have differing advice. And the best thing that I can tell you to you is go and do a lot of research Find out what genre you're actually writing in because that makes a huge difference to who you market with and how much you spend. But most of all, and this goes for writing too, always make sure you go with your gut. If you don't think that it's the right decision, don't make it. If you don't think that it's the option for you or it really is too much money, then don't spend it. It's all about making sure that you do promote the book, you do do what you can, but you don't do more than you can. Couldn't have said wiser words, absolutely. Uh, marketing is daunting. And, but it's also, uh, it can be an incredible journey, you know, just like writing your first book or even every book is a journey. 
And but if you're going to self-publish, I just think it's, there's there's just so many other avenues there to, to rather than I mean it's going to be daunting, but turn it into something really enjoyable as well. So if you're going to be one of those authors that designs their own book cover, have fun, go to town with it, really enjoy the process, and then enjoy the process of finding someone who can actually complete your vision. Um, and then you may form a bond, or you may learn different. You you may discover you you acquire different a taste for for a new style of art too by doing that but and same with marketing uh embrace it treat it as an adventure start off you know don't go throwing all your money into every every marketing strategy that come across on top 10 lists on stuff just slowly look into it like i said do the research try some try one little trick here did it work no okay move on if it worked yes what worked about it and yeah there's going to be pitfalls there's going to be brick walls there's going to be mistakes made um but isn't that's what we do every day in that wonderful magical mysterious sometimes painful thing called life and uh so if you are going to keep writing then why not be at least take the reins if you're going to be self-publishing then do your best but you know you want to be do your best as far as writing a book so do your best as far as marketing or at least looking into the what tools are available and, and how you can approach your marketing strategy and and just uh because ultimately the goal is to get your book into people's hands so. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And like, to give you an example of the things that you can use, one of the things that I often run across for self-published authors is the fact that they don't do very good covers. And a lot of the time it's because they don't know things like, they think they have to use Photoshop, which is a very difficult program to use, but it's also incredibly expensive. And there's things they don't know, like there is another program called GIMP 2.0, yes. which you can get YouTube tutorials for that teach you how to make the book. There are so many blogs and so many YouTube videos that show you how to make a cover that gets people's attention. There is even a internet browser program called Canva that I actually use to make all my social media posts with, and I often use their templates. And I don't use it for book covers, but you can. And with a lot of book covers, you can often just get the, and this is the important part about this. I'm going to stress this really, really strongly. If you are self-published is make sure you get the commercial licensing on the photos and the font that you are using, because you would not believe the amount of trouble that you can get into if you do not do that. But once you've crossed that particular bridge, you find that there are a lot of programs out there and I do talk about them on my website and how a little bit how to use them. And there are heaps of YouTube videos about it because I'm self-taught. Nearly everything that I've done as an author, aside from editing and developmental editing, I've had to teach myself. So, and if somebody who has such an emotional learning disability as myself can do this, then even if you too have that emo like have that learning disability, that you can do this too. And yes, you may need help, but there are so many step-by-step -step blogs out there that can help you show you how to do it. There are so many Facebook support groups. There are so many people on Twitter who, if you just ask, will say to you, yep, this is what you need to do. And it's just about learning how to ask. And one of the things that you'll find about pretty much every writer that you go and speak to is that many of them are absolutely 110% willing to share with you how they do stuff because they went through this same learning curve and other people taught them too. Yes, and look, obviously you, you said you've been self-taught and regardless of whether neurodiversive or not, I think there's no denying the fact that just from what you've told us just then and some of the things you've told us earlier, definitely going to be a huge inspiration for a lot of listeners out there and a lot of writers, a lot of first-time writers, a lot of long-time writers. 
Um, I'll be definitely having taking a real good look at your website uh, because I'm forever looking into marketing hints, tips, and tricks. And there's and you know there's nothing better than talking to someone like yourself who has embarked on this journey. One, that's that's always the hard thing to embark on it and take that first step. But two, has maintained their journey and has not stopped and keeps pushing through. So you're what seven years into your writing journey now. You've crossed so many crevasses, so many mountains have already been climbed, so many, so no doubt all weather conditions have been uh, pushed through. And that's why it is such a, you know, an honor and so awesome to have this opportunity to chat with you today, AJ. Thank you for coming on the podcast and letting everyone know about all of these amazing aspects of your writing and what's, what's involved in the way you think when it comes to your characters and where a lot of these inspirations come for the themes. Now, obviously, we will be put uh, all the links from anything we've mentioned into our show notes. But would you like to let our listeners know where they can find you if anywhere besides your uh, website? Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter a lot. So I do have a Facebook page. But if you look up uh, at EJ Dawson Author on Twitter, that's where you'll find me on a more day-to-day basis. There is a massive writing community on there that I'm very interactive with. So please look me up there. Please also free feel free, if that's not your preferred platform, to reach out through my website, uh, ejdawson.com. I'm always happy to answer any sort of questions that anyone has, either about my writing or about how I've become a writer. And I just want to say, Darren, thank you so much for having me today. This has been an absolute delight with full conversation. No, this, it has been awesome. And you heard it out there, listeners. If you have a question and you struggling with some aspect of your writing or of your marketing strategy or simply the finding the right steps to be able to begin the whole journey ej has just uh, let you know you can reach out and ask a question so and i think that is one of the most beautiful aspects of writing and the writing community and uh, so for that thank you so much ej and if you wouldn't mind i'd like to finish this little podcast by qu- actually quoting one of the answers that you were that you written for us earlier one of the questions put to you was who helped you most when you were starting out? And I think this is a, it's a pretty fair question. And I think it's, you know, everyone out there starts out. So I think it's one of the most important questions. But your answer really blew my socks off because uh, so I'll just uh, read this out for everybody. So quote, knowing that I would make mistakes, that not everyone would like my work and acknowledging that I wasn't here to make everyone happy. I was here to write books that for a time would steal someone's reality. End quote. Now, I absolutely love that. I love that term to steal someone's reality. And if you ask me, I think that quote should be put on a nice, big, shiny coffee mug and I'll definitely (laughs) buy it. So EJ, thank you so much for your time. And we really do hope that we have an opportunity to chat again real soon. So perhaps as soon as you get some new news on Behind the Veil or any exciting news, or even just so that we can have a chat again, it will be wonderful to bring you back on board. Thank you very much, Darren. It would be wonderful to be here. Awesome. You take care. And everybody, jump onto australianbooklovers.com and have a look under our science fiction and fantasy genre where you can find book one of the Queen of Spades trilogy, Awakening, and click that Learn More button to learn more about EJ's whole back catalogue, where you can find her website and further information. You will not be disappointed.
And what a brilliant interview with EJ Dawson. She is so generous, so giving in, in her knowledge around books and her own practice and the whole industry. So, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it was an amazing uh, time. So thank really you so much, EJ. And uh, hey, let's do it again soon. Yeah, and uh, The Fifth Element, one of my favourite movies of all time. Go, Bruce. Ah, uh, yes. I love <laughs> I love a good floating taxi. Love them. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, it's one of the Strachan family movies, The Fifth Element, because you used to make the kids watch it a lot. Uh, but, yeah, so we can quote a lot of the lines uh-huh. from that. Um, you know, Gary Oldman and... Uh, Miller jo- uh, Jovovich, I've probably said that incorrectly, but yes, yes. fantastic movie. Yes, no, she 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 does a lot of the uh, the genre films. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, never, yeah, never stop that's working. That's right. She's in um, Resident Evil series. Concert. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. The Resident Evil. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Okay, so don't stop now, though. No, no, we've still got a whole heap of entertainment to come. Indeed. So what I want to mention is our lovely big surprise is that there is a reading. At the end of the episode, so after Darren and I have traded quotes um, and we've got a book review, as I mentioned, but we've also got a reading from E.J. Dawson, her book, Behind the Veil. It's a gothic noir set in the 1920s Los Angeles during the rise of occultism. So this uh, has their script was acquired by Literary Wanderlust and it's not out until October. So you are getting a sneak peek of a whole chapter of Behind the Veil. And oh, yeah, me, baby, you nothing will be better than that yeah, on, secret, on, secret, to be red pile. Yes, well, yeah, nothing beats a little secret sneak peek. Yeah, so it's, it's just fantastic. So I, I was very privileged to be able to read that, and not only that, but to read the whole book. It's like, oh, so yes, I would have been fangirling all over the place if I'd interviewed EJ. So probably just as well that I didn't. Well, I guess technically, <laughs> and unless unless I'm uh, can be proven otherwise, technically the reading that will follow our uh, little quote sharing, um, technically that will be a world first. Is, it is that will right? be a world first. A yes, world premiere. Absolutely. Yes. So that potentially yeah, is our so. very first world premiere on the Australian Book Lovers Podcast. Woohoo! So yeah, thank nice you, EJ, one, for letting that. us letting us uh, make that bold claim. <laughs> so, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm sure there's ton of tons and tons and tons of tons of readers out there that are just salivating at the idea of that new book coming out later this year. Yeah, and, and it's completely different to the the sci-fi series, The Queen of Spades. Very different. Still that same confident voice. Still, you know, a brilliantly strong woman doing lots of fabulous things. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, however. What EJ's interview with you inspired me to chase up in terms of quotes was a little bit about, um, you know, she talked about own voices and people not standing for being put in boxes and people speaking up for, you know, what they believe in and that these days we don't, you know, accept uh, nearly as much uh, of the isms as we did and we, we're gradually working through them. So there's a quote by Angela Davis, who is an American political activist, and the quote is, I am no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I am changing the things I cannot accept. Oh, lovely. Yeah, that's a bit of a good like bite. Yeah, yeah, I like that. you got me mm. thinking now. I, I was talking to a gentleman yeah. today uh, who was talking about uh, uh, he's he's got a friend over in America and she I can't remember the name of this uh, political activist who is graining mm-hmm. a whole lot of ground 
and fundamentally mm-hmm. they are neither the left nor the right but believe you know that, that there has to be some sort of balance but uh, now i may butcher this but apparently they're they're basically their signia is hawaiian shirts and weaponry like guns rifles and so they mm-hmm. cruise around in mm-hmm. hawaiian shirts and, and carrying guns but uh, which sounds really <laughs> okay. cool, but yeah, but but their their philosophy, I think, is based similarly on that exact quote in the sense of there's no more just saying, well, I can't change that, you know, yep. more a case of, you know, can no longer accept it not being changed. No, but, that, that, that's absolutely right. So the same as Reconciliation Week, um, you know, it, it takes, it's more than a word, it, it takes action. So you know, me going along to the uh, learning uh, a bit more about acknowledging country. Um, I do some donations to the, you know, regularly donate to the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. I try and read more diversely in terms of not only uh, Indigenous authors, but it's also opened me up to reading more than just, I guess, European-based and, you know, that's uh, American, Australian, European-based, but looking at not only people of colour, but also all different uh, nationalities. And it's amazing the histories and the worlds and the imaginations that people bring when you don't just read the things that you love, you know, but you think, oh, I'll try that. Um, so, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, like no, that, 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 that definitely is a us? quote with a bite. Um, I've got one from, well, uh, by author Catherine M. Valente, um, and mm-hmm. it was uh, inspired by my little rabbit hole into space operas and whatnot. So this mm-hmm. quote is, life is beautiful and life is stupid. This is, in fact, <laughs> widely regarded as a universal rule, not less inviolable than the second law of thermodynamics, the uncertainty principle, and no post on Sundays. As long as you keep that in <laughs> mind and never give more weight to one than the other, the history of the galaxy is a simple tune with lyrics flashed on screen and helpful, friendly, bouncing disco ball of all annihilating flames to help you follow along. I love that. <laughs> oh, that is very good. Yeah, no, I, I do like that. That it, um, yeah, tongue in cheek. I like it. It brings me in mind of you know Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's yes. Guide to the Galaxy. Yes, certainly. Yeah, <laughs> and those terrible people. Oh, those terrible. Um, People who the government and they love the bureaucracy, but reading poetry and oh, it's dreadful. Yeah, very good. But no, I like it. Nice one. The, the, All the, right. the crazy thing is, with the times we're living in now, the sarcasm has become reality. So where do we go for sarcasm now? <laughs> That's what's scary. Yeah. Like, yeah, but anyway, yeah. nonetheless, mm. what is your second quote? Radio. So my second quote is from George Bernard Shaw. So, um, although apparently known at his insistence simply as Bernard Shaw. So he was an Irish playwright. Um, uh, his influence on Western culture, politics extended from, uh, you know, sort of the late 1800s. Uh, and uh, he died, I think he lived to a ripe old age. So I'm pretty sure he was in his uh, 90s, 80s or 90s when he died. But his quote, which I've had this one, uh, this is one of my faves that I've held close to my heart for quite some time. You see things and you say... Why? But I dream things that never were, and I say, why not? Perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Or I, I, yeah. I, I thought the final word was going to be, and I say, when? <laughs> but why not? It's the <laughs> same thing. Yeah. Why not? Because yeah. that for me kind of wraps up the whole genre of science fiction, which is the the what if or the why not, you know? So, yeah, I thought that was good. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't it uh, just, I don't know, there's something about, 
from from a young age, or at least speaking for myself and and you know all the all the kids I grow up with, you know, there's the fascination with space from the minute you can sort of open a book, and mm. I don't, it just it never ends, does it? Like the, as in the the joy never comes to an end. The and the, no. the opportunity to explore your imagination through outer space it just grows every day, and the, yeah. the longer I live, yeah. the, the you know, because the, the more you're getting, yeah, but also the more. <laughs> lessons you learn in life the more you can read into the future like the more you can speculate in the future with your imagination uh yeah for for example about technologies and life and yeah so yeah definitely dream and say when or or why not i couldn't imagine waking up having fantastic dreams and and the only thing i think to myself is no oh horrible (laughs) i say no to decaf coffee i'll never say no to dream All right, give us your second quote. Okay, this one's a bit shorter, and this one Mm -hmm. is by a gentleman called Brian Aldous, and the quote Mm -hmm. is, when knowledge becomes formulated into a science, then it does take on a life of its own, often alien to the human spirit that conceived it. Mm. So, yeah, I I like that one, obviously. I wouldn't have picked it. Um, Yeah, and I think it sort of draws, uh, for me it draws a little bit of a, I don't know, underline under the fact that I think, you know, ultimately science doesn't create anything in the sense of uh, universal laws or physics or anything like that. It simply reveals them to the best of our ability. Um, yeah. So, you know, I guess a little bit like, is it, was it Plato and his forms where the concepts are, are in mm. that nether region, but, you know, we just happen to tap into them like a, like a frequency. Uh, but, yeah, because, I mean, okay, we, didn't okay, invent, yeah. we didn't invent math. We didn't invent the atom so you know there are all these uh but so when we formulate it into a science really we've just illuminated new understandings of the universe but those understandings yeah take a life on their own don't they uh for good yes. or bad yeah and in fact brian aldous's uh series so the heliconia series which i read many years ago and i've still got my copies um where people stepped through into the oh, like the pliocene era um uh, and then have to start life all over again and to see how they develop their life all over again really brings to life what you were talking about in terms of the development and you know new worlds and having to set up the whole culture and thing all over again so yeah that was really fascinating I, i remember reading that maybe that's another one i have to reread another click well, all I know about science fiction... They're a bit fiction, thicker than the Lensmans. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're all fantastic, but if I had to pick up one negative, it would be that for nearly half my life, I was sure, well, at least by post-2000, we would have hovercrafts, yeah. their own hovercrafts, oh. and we don't. Still got boring <laughs> old rubber wheels on the road. Well, oh. no, nothing we can drive. Well, no, no, on no the main roads, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I want, yeah, yeah, I want something I can yes. Jetson style. Uh, but well, then again, we've got, we've got electric ones now. Hybrids becoming more available for the general population. Yeah, yeah. but can it go on there? So, no, not yet. I know. This is the sorry. problem. <laughs> but then, you know, the more I think of it, I'm thinking traffic's bad enough to run down the shop, let alone if we could fly, then it'd wow. just be absolute madness up there. Yes, so, yes, yes. I, I'd much rather blink. Let's get to the whole telekinesis and, um, you know, the using your mind just to, you know, get yourself to another place. Spend space and time is what I'm all about. Never mind. That can't else. be far off. I mean, no, uh, Musk has got the uh, the neural <laughs> implants. So, what, so <laughs> as long as there's an alpha stage, there'll be a, you know, the, the technology will leapfrog and um, just like the microchip. And at some yes. point, 
You Although know, I am actually reading Emoto's Promise. I, I know I read a lot. It's, it's terrible. I've got too many books on the go at one time. I'm reading Emoto's Promise by um, Shel Koloba, who's, which is another one of the Dead Set Press mm-hmm. Drowned Earth series. And uh, without spoilers, um, this takes place in Darwin where you, people may remember that the series is based on the fact that an asteroid drops into the ocean near uh, Australia and floods a good proportion of the, the continent. So this takes place in Darwin where the city is actually behind a huge wall, but 99% of the population have been plugged into these neural implants. So maybe not so far away. Maybe not far away at all. Yes, um, yeah. A Promise by Shel Kaluba. Do I want to do it? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm happy in my VR, but the beautiful yeah, thing is I can... Would you like to get something plugged in? It, yeah, I can unplug it and walk back and go on the beach. And but when you think about it, we've, we've got um, the ears. Uh, what do you call them? The... I've got ears. Do you have ears? Bion- <laughs> Thank you. Bionic ears. <laughs> Bionic ears is what I'm trying to say. And they've been around for a while and now oh, been, yeah, absolutely. you know, better and better. Yeah, allowing uh, uh, people who are born with, without hearing or with minimal hearing to get, um, get some great hearing happening. Anyway, we digress. We probably need to wrap it up. Darren. Yes, I think so. And make some room for a fantastic reading and Indeed. a book review. So please stay tuned. And yes. um, now this is should be a pretty good tagline except, but if it's not that good, don't feel bad and turn it off. No money joking. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but if you do want to hear yeah, and if you want to hear more or read more about Australian authors, don't forget to go to the website, which is www.australianbooklovers.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Australian Books. And on Facebook and Instagram, we are at Australian Book Lovers and you'll see, um, uh, you know, we'll share some more of the books and bits and pieces and we also highlight the podcasts that are there and we're, as we say, we are up to number 19. So start listening, peeps. And if you'd like to leave us a review on your favourite podcasting platform, whether it be some stars or a few words, we would be very happy and appreciative because it helps our podcast rise to the top of the algorithm and more people get to listen yeah there you go and now we're ready for the tagline well yes and <laughs> let me just say episode 19 that means australian book lovers is officially hitting the nightclub scene because that is the time <laughs> so grab a book hit the tables get under the disco ball and uh, and support some great australian authors while yes. we are uh, yes who knows well when did nightclubs end i reckon maybe maybe we'll call it 22 maybe 22 will start transitioning again but uh, yeah episode 19 it makes me feel like night clubbing okay but yes as you were saying all right remember to read more aussie books that was pretty good not not too bad still a tad under nine but you know in the high point eight point seven yeah but thank you so much everybody thanks for being a part of the show and can't wait to join you again for the next episode and remember stay tuned for some great entertainment bye for now take care behind the veil by e.j dawson read by veronica strachan chapter three It was cold when they kicked him out of the pub. Joseph only wanted to buy a bottle to take home. They hadn't sold it to him after he vomited in the gentleman's. But tonight, of all nights, he needed it. Just like every other night, really. The rain drenched him, but he didn't care. All he wanted was a drink. 
He didn't want to see his family sitting around the table praising his brother John for the promotion at the bank. Declining the dinner invitation, Joseph had made excuses before John's mocking laughter caught him at the door. Let him go, mother. He's tired already. Joseph had proven to himself that his level of sobriety was nigh on angelic then, compared to what he was now. The world swam and he struggled even to see in the dreary light. He was lost. The streets kept turning about. The normal route that should have taken him up Beverly and onto Gardner found him on Vista. Rain turned to sleet as he stumbled through the sleepy streets. It was lucky, he thought, because if he hadn't been drunk, the cold would have bothered him. He'd get home. The rain had momentarily confused him. As the rain turned to frozen slush on the pavement, the slippery surface caught his unwary feet. There was a flash, and the sidewalk was level with his eyes. He blinked away stars, feeling an echo inside his head, and the world went black, street lamps dying out, only to come back. Joseph studied them, fading in and out, waiting for it to stop. A part of him assessed the damage, cold and distant. This was bad. He'd fallen and given himself a severe concussion. It wasn't the first time. The last time had been... had been... Joseph tilted his head to the side so he could retch, agony rushing through him, sharp this time as he spat out the contents of his liquid dinner. This is no good, he muttered to himself, staring at the amount of vomit on the pavement. Joseph got to his knees and his stomach regurgitated yet more liquid, the stench of alcoholic bile bringing up everything until his body was curled in its own excess. Pain lanced through his head, an iron spike that squeezed his eyes shut, and he didn't see the men walking toward him. "'Tad ossified, sir?' one asked. "'Might be.' Joseph slit an eye open to see two policemen there and breathing a sigh of relief. At least he wasn't about to be robbed. That would have been the highlight of the evening. Or possibly it had turned worse. It was the police after all. "'I'm trying to get to 161 South Gardner,' he said, searching for excuses not to be dragged to the drying-out tank." His father wouldn't bail him out, and when he threatened like he had tonight, he meant it. All good, sir, the policeman said. We'll get you home. They picked him up under the arms, the journey foggy until he was standing in the porch's light. The policeman knocked on the door, and Joseph couldn't stop them in time. The maid opened it, her mouth dropping open at Joseph's state, and the presence of two officers. Oh, I'll get Mr Norman. She dashed off. Joseph tried to pull away to stand on his own two feet, but even with his stomach empty of alcohol, he was still drunk. His head hurt, thumping in pulse to the angry pounding of his father's footsteps. Thank you, officers, his father said and shook their hands, a glimpse of paper in his palm. The officers' smiles were wide at the thick wad of money, the cause for their kindness, which continued as they tipped their hats and left. Walk around back and get in the guest house, boy, his father intoned, not letting Joseph in. I will not disgrace your mother by letting you into this house. I will not let you ruin John's good fortune because you've pissed your own pathetic life away. You were a doctor, and then you drowned in a bottle. I should have told you I was disowning you, but I didn't want you to come home like this. You're a disgrace. It went on. Joseph stopped listening and he didn't even notice when his father shut the door. 
How long he'd been standing out on the porch, he was uncertain, the world's tears falling on his shoulders. He turned around, walking around the outside of the house and down the side path to the guest house. The door handle didn't want to open. The deck chairs around the covered pool were inviting, even with the cold, but the bitter chill was getting worse. He had to get into the guest house. There was a gas heater inside if he could concentrate long enough to open the door. Another shove pushed the door open, and it slammed when he fell against it. Stumbling steps took him to the centre of the room, but looking about, it was as welcome as the rain-covered chairs outside. Dust sheets covered the furniture and became the ghosts of his past. Silent and accusatory, he waited to hear their pleas to make the pain stop, though they were naught but memories. Standing alone in the dusty space, Joseph fell to his knees and cried. No family. Friends dead in the war. Few that understood what being in the medical tents was like, what it did to you night after night. The endless screams and the visions that haunted him. During the day now, it was worse. He could see them during the day. He could see them right now. Letitia wrenched herself away, manifested as physical reeling, and her hands slapped down on the table. The end had been so subtle it had wrapped about her with the tentative touch of a spider, coming closer to bite her and share the death with Joseph. She gripped the wood, absorbed the warmth in her palm, sweat on her upper lip, and a chill on her skin from the cold of Joseph's death. "'Miss Hawking, are you all right?' Mrs Norman asked. Please, Letitia said, before quieting her tone. A moment, please. The traces faded, fingers of death slipping by her as she recovered her breath and grounded herself in her own body. Letitia didn't know what she would tell these patrons. They wanted to know it wasn't their fault and to be sure Joseph hadn't passed with regrets. The guest house was an eerie reminder of their transgression. But it wasn't because Joseph was there since he was glad to be gone from the world. It was their own guilt. Ms Hawking, Mr Norman said, voice gruff, disbelief on his face. Opening his mouth to contest her, she cut him to the quick. You were there, at the door, when the policeman brought him home. She watched the skin of his pale cheeks become reddened, and she pushed on. You told him how unimpressed you were after the police left. Letitia didn't stop, even as Mr Norman glanced with shame at the now sobbing Mrs Norman. You told him to go out the back, not to make a fuss. Letitia changed the sentence, rephrased it so Mr Norman wouldn't be any more embarrassed than he already was, and at least now Mrs Norman knew what had happened. She could guess for herself what exchanged between her husband and son. And at at the end... Mrs Norman asked through a series of tearful hiccups. Letitia chose her words with care, wanting the Normans to go away at peace, but warier of how to treat their other children. Joseph was relieved to pass on, Letitia said, watching the father close his eyes in reprieve. You were right, Mr Norman. He wasn't fine after the war, and he didn't know how to make it better. This would not be the first time someone has come to me with a son or a husband who was stolen by the war long after it ended. But Joseph saved many lives. He did dreadful things for those lives, 
but there are men who went home because of him. Not whole, but they went home. She let silence fill the space. But he never said, Mr Norman exclaimed. Letitia said nothing as he stared at her fury and shame, burning pink brands on his cheeks. He isn't here, Letitia said, and he's far better for it. Mrs Norman clung to her husband, who was now wrapping an arm around her. I'd like a moment with my wife. I cannot leave the room, Mr Norman, Letitia said, apology in every nuance of her words, since what I have done today is difficult and leaves behind a residue. We should leave, William, Mrs Norman said, composure returning as she rose with the help of her husband. Thank you very much for your time, Miss Hawking. I hope I've brought you some level of closure, Letitia said, coming to take Mrs Norman's outstretched hand and allowing a brief embrace before she pulled back, both arms on Mrs Norman's shoulders. Now go home, and when the spring comes, clean the guesthouse from top to bottom. There is nothing there than an echo of another victim of the Great War, and he does not reside there. Sniffling, Mrs Norman went to the door. Mr Norman was behind her, holding out his hand for Letitia's, and, like the incident with the policeman, there were folded notes in his hand, at least another $20. Letitia stared down at them before lifting her eyes to see the desperate hope of Mr Norman. If she took them, he would close the matter, the last page of a book. The certainty was so stark in the lines of his face, she didn't need to open herself to see his personality. He was revolting enough as it was, and it left a sour taste in her mouth. Mr Norman, Letitia said, low enough for his ears alone, you've paid me for my services already, and now you need never bring your family the shame of disowning your son. You saw? He stopped, hands clenching around the memory. She met his gaze and after a long moment, he was the first to break away. Letitia went to the door where Mrs Norman had put on her coat and the pair left. Mrs Norman the only one to look back for a final goodbye. There was no sinister figure on the landing and Letitia closed the door. But something about the session was wrong. Nothing too untoward occurred. It was smooth from beginning to end, except for one small anomaly. Letitia went to the table and sat back in her chair, and instead of looking at the bowl, she tilted her head back to glance at the chandelier over the table. It had candles in some of its holders, placed to cast the right light on the mirror that hung from its centre. Round and twice the size of the scrying bowl, the chandelier was suspended from three chains, making it secure and avoiding sway as much as possible. It was tilted at such an angle so that when Letitia looked into it, she saw the scrying bowl. This was a different type of seeing. The bowl would drag her in and take her to the critical moments before death to experience it herself. Letitia always found the exact cause before she sought a person's end. Innocent and accidental deaths were easy. She'd take a few gentle moments to relate to loved ones without getting too close to the cause. Others were in sickness or injury, even the battlefield itself. She'd be with them until their death approached. Those who died at the hands of a murderer were not forewarned, or what little they saw came too late to Letitia. It was why she would not take murder cases. There were instances where the victim succumbed to shock before death, or were even taken unaware. 
delving into their fate when she wasn't sure what was coming, risked her dying with them. Old Mother Burroughs hadn't wanted to talk about what happened if Letitia got that far. But then she hadn't needed to tell Letitia. Her own experience had cut her to the bone, tore her soul to shreds and left her a wreck. Old Mother Burroughs was lucky to find enough sense within to repair. When Letitia used the mirror, they were simply visions, the sensation akin to the images that played in her head as she read works of fiction or watched a silent film at the cinema. But like the bowl that could drag her into the death, so too was the mirror dangerous. She could become lost in a reading. The chair was her safety. She would fall to one side or on the table when she became too tired. There was no such safeguard against the scrying bowl. She read the scrying mirror. It was far easier to slide into its vision, which reflected the remnants left in the scrying bowl of Letitia's last visit. Though it was still distant to her, she knew what she sought. Joseph's death replayed in her mind. But this time she was only an observer, not lost in his emotion. She was a figure on the street following him home, watching him fall over, remembering his subsequent pain. The humiliating scene at the front door was a thousand times worse at a distance without the alcohol or splitting pain to distract her from the horrible words of Mr Norman. For a moment, Letitia wished she could have made Mr Norman squirm all the more, but it was a brief and selfish wish. His tirade abated when Mrs Norman came looking to see who it was and Mr Norman shut the door without a backward glance. Letitia studied the scene from across the street, but now she came closer to Joseph, not watching him, but the shadows. Nothing alerted her senses or was wrong about the situation, but she followed him, fading into the guest house. Joseph stood in the centre of the room, crying before falling to the floor and curling up into a ball against the cold and all the nightmares the world had given him. Letitia knelt beside him, aware of what was coming and unable to stop it. But still, she touched Joseph's forehead with a cool hand. A figure leaned over her. She shrieked, slamming onto the floor as she came off her chair. Broken out of the vision, she stared around her ordinary session room. The shadow had disappeared, but there was no mistaking its presence. The figure, while terrifying her, had a discernible difference from the one she'd seen behind Mr Driscoll. In the world of visions, she could evade its form, even if the sense of dread was triggered by her own underlying fear. Unlike the being who'd glared over Mr Driscoll's shoulder, this figure had emanated no such ill intent within the vision of Joseph's death. But if a being of shadow haunted her sessions, then being anywhere near Mr Driscoll could risk the very damage that left her body scarred and her mind on the edge of its sanity. No amount of money would bring Letitia willingly back there, not when she'd already experienced what lay beyond the veil. Billa Yaradungalangjirai by Anita Heiss Love and loss set on the timeless lands of Wiradjuri country and encompassing all the majesty and terror of the Murrumbidgee Billa, the Murrumbidgee River. Billa Yaradungalangjirai is a beautifully written love story that brings a historical focus to a true event. The river flooding of 1852 in Gundagai 
sets the scene for Heist to weave a wonderful tale of Wagadani finding her place in a world of white men and always being drawn back to her own people and country. I loved reading the Wiradjuri words, hearing the stories of connection to land, love and respect for country, and seeing history from Wagadani's view. Elevating, educational and emotion-charged. A great read. Let's meet again. When magic happens... Australian Book Lovers acknowledges First Nations peoples and recognises their continuous connection to country, community and to culture. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and honour the sharing of traditional stories passed down through generations. We're committed to a safe and inclusive welcome for authors and readers of all cultures and backgrounds including people of LGBTQIA plus communities and their families.